Good evening, everybody. Stefan Molyneux, Freedom Main Radio. Yes, Java powered as usual uh, this fine Wednesday night, 9th of October, 2013. I hope you're doing very well. I'm excited. I'm excited because the magnificent bastard Joe Rogan uh, tweeted uh, his uh, fandom uh, of um, Free Domain Radio to over a million people. And um, what's resulted, of course, is I've got a whole bunch of MMI fights scheduled for my front lawn. Should be quite a lot of fun. We'll be selling tickets naturally. We have snagged some seriously big-time celebrities to come up uh, on the show, uh, which I'm very excited about. We'll give you more details as they go forward. So if you really want to keep up with all the great stuff that is going on, with this most essential planet side conversation, you can uh, subscribe. I hope you will um, at uh, youtube.com forward slash free domain radio. We are on iTunes. Just give a search for free domain radio. If you could give us five stars or as many stars as you feel we deserve and write a review of what you think of the show, that will really help entice new people to uh, step into the quicksand of reason known as <laughs> free domain radio. So I hope that you will do that. As always, of course. I am uh, on the, uh, as Madonna saying, I'm on my knees. I'm going to take you there. Uh, if you would like to uh, donate, uh, I'm in the begging position at fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Uh, so, uh, Mike, let's get to the brains of the outfit. Who do we have in the rotating phalanx of rational questions? Hey, Steph, how's it going? I'm good. I feel glossy. How are you doing? Pretty good. Also a little Java field myself, so I think maybe we'll be on the same wavelength. So Beautiful. Yeah, so uh, first I want to say I'm a huge fan as an activist, um, a web developer, and entrepreneur myself, so you're a huge inspiration. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. And more recently, I've actually become really involved with Bitcoin. And I know you and your listeners are pretty much on the Bitcoin train and know what it's all about. So... Um, I also, at the same time, I'm also a supporter of a resource-based economy. So I know that's kind of, maybe seems a little contradictory, but uh, if you be so I think, kind... No, no, to be honest, sorry, just, just to be very clear, people who are supporters of resource-based economies, I think are fantastic. I have no problem with it whatsoever. Uh, you know, I'm a supporter of Queen, the band. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm going to enforce them. Oh, it's the only thing that tempts me to violate the non-aggression principle was to make everyone sit down and listen to the falsetto genius of Cool Cat. But um, no, if you're a supporter of a resource-based economy, I think that's fantastic. I'm open to and encouraging of and, and enthusiastic towards all forms of social and economic experimentation which don't violate the non-aggression principle. So I uh, just want to point out, if you're a supporter, now if you're an enforcer of a resource-based economy, then we are not going to have friendly words. But if you're a, a supporter of it and think it's a great idea, well, who am I to say? No, I mean, good Lord. I mean, we, we're all busy. I don't want to dictate what people can and can't do as long as they're not, uh, as long as they respect the same privilege. I just want to sort of be clear about that to, to people who don't know, you know, my position on that. Okay, yeah, because I think that is I think watching some of the videos that might be unclear because I think you and Peter kind of have a, like you said, it's a debating, it's kind of a head-to-head. -head, and I think really we all want the same, you know, we want a peaceful society that we can all live in. So what I would like to do is kind of present a different perspective and how technically it might be feasible, which I don't think you guys have really touched on. So if you wouldn't, if you'd be so kind, I'd like no, to kind of go over that. No, go ahead. So basically it falls along the lines with Bitcoin. So... Bitcoin is a decentralized planned network. So every node or every person that's involved with Bitcoin simultaneously agrees on the rules of the Bitcoin protocol. And just like no one person can all of a sudden decide that they're going to print themselves a million Bitcoin, um, 
they have to operate within those rules. But at the same time, there's a rule decided that you can't prevent me from giving money to so-and-so. So what's kind of evolving out of the Bitcoin idea is something called a uh, autonomous decentralized corporation, essentially. So it's a uh, set of rules that operates decentrally with uh, mutually agreed upon, basically, a protocol. So um, in a nonviolent society, which I think is required to reach an RBE, I think we could all agree to uh, set up an autonomous corporation that would be in charge of managing resources that would be uh, voluntarily given, I guess, to the power of the corporation. And then by accessing resources that you need, you'd be able to um, query, I guess, the network and have access to the necessities or the things that you needed. So does that make sense? Okay, so there's a central depository of resources, and you say, you know, I would like uh, a new phone, and then a new phone is delivered? Um, yeah, essentially. No, it's. I, mean, I, think, that's, I think that's. I think that's wonderful. I, I I have no desire to participate in such a system, but that may be due to my truncated and narrow-minded perspective. But um, the problem is that uh, human resources are uh, sorry. Hu- uh, all resources are finite, and human de- desires are infinite. And so, w- what is it that puts the limit on human desires? Well, one of the things that puts the limit on human desires is price, and price reflects the scarcity and complexity of a good that's being produced, and of course, it, it reflects the demand. So one of the beautiful things about a price system is that the more demand there is, uh, the higher the price goes, which of course, as you know, signals entrepreneurs to provide more of that good and or service, which then brings the price back down uh, and all of that. And, and the lack of the price system is one of the fundamental uh, problems that we have uh, in uh, a centrally planned society, because this is a centrally planned society. This is not entrepreneurs in a freewheeling uh, non-central system attempting to satisfy goods and service requirements based on price and demand. Uh, you have a central repository of, of goods and services which people then demand at no cost to themselves, if I understand you correctly. Yeah, but I think in a, in a free society, we would have a level of education much higher than today. So no one, you know, for me, for example, I'm not going to say, you know, I want this phone delivered to my house. I'm going to say I want this supply of silicone. I want these uh, resistors, these circuits and I want to build the phone that I see would fit my needs the best. And at the same time... You want to build your have... own phone? People, sorry, wait, wait. People will yeah. be building their own phones? I don't see why not. Why? Well, because of, because, uh, the... Uh, because of the division of labor and specialization. I mean, why would I want to learn how to build a phone? Well, okay, some people do. I get no one's some people build their own computers, to. but... I'm sorry? Yeah. No one would be requiring you to build your own phone. But I'm saying if I had the access to the raw materials to do so, I would be able to share in an open source format just like Bitcoin, I would be able to share that formula to build the phone with X, Y, and Z features. And then but, but someone let could... Me, use- sorry, let me just make sure I understand something, Matt. I mean, why is it important to try and figure out which system is best, right? I mean, if, if you're going to... I mean, y'all, like, sounds like an us versus them, but if you want to build this kind of environment, if you want to set up a company or you want to set up any kind of organization in a free market that is going to give people stuff um you know for free or whatever then why why not just do that because you have to pay for the materials there's there's a price in in the current market system so you wouldn't you'd have to charge them the price to give it away 
so sorry, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my my question was, yeah. um, wh- why why not set up whatever it is that you want to set up in a uh, in a free society? Why why do you need any kind of monopoly? Well, I think that's it, it emerges out of the, the free market. Essentially, you're creating this corporation of open source materials that does allow for give and take freely. It's just not it's not possible in a price market system because those raw materials would require prices to begin with. Uh, so when you say it's not possible in a free market system, what does that mean? So we're, we, we have no state. We have, uh, right. you know, freely trading uh, people. We have charity. We have uh, massive multiples of our existing income. And that's not enough, right? You feel that there should be something better than that. And so what is it that you would then try and convince people to switch over to a priceless system? Well, I, I mean, obviously, I can't plan for every advantage that it would have, but I, mean, I think being able to have access to the resources is just—it's it's another method of of transferring goods. And no, so uh, sorry, sorry, you got to be precise. Uh, this okay. is what always bugs me about this stuff, and not you. It's just like don't get access to the resources. What does that mean? Right, so uh, uh, what does it mean when you say that you can't exist in a price system? Does that mean the price system is banned? I mean, what what happens? Well, no, it's not banned. I, I think having access to resources is like, is like having access to the, to the Bitcoin network. You you send money through it. No, you, you only have, have access free. to the Bitcoin network because you already have private property. You only have access to the Bitcoin network because you have a computer, because you have a house, because you have electricity, because all these things, right? The Bitcoin network Correct. doesn't exist in some socialist paradise, right, or any sort of uh, Venus Project paradise. Uh, you need private property in order for there to be Bitcoins, and Bitcoins only have value because you can buy and sell things with them. So comparing Bitcoin so, to so some RBs is, free, is, uh, is invalid. So if someone gave you your computer for free, you wouldn't be able to access the Bitcoin network? I mean, it, No, it, of course not. Why is that? I mean, I would need electricity. I need food. I need shelter. I need uh, heat in the winter. I need lots of things, right? Just okay. someone. We're, we're, if we're I talking just about you a starting in the middle of the desert. You're not going to be able to do okay. much with your bitcoins, right? But we're, we're we're talking about starting a new city where people are voluntarily creating the city by submitting their resources and time and energy. Okay. So so it's you could a, uh, actually it's like a gain. It's basically like a charity. Yes. So you could, you so could it's like actually, what I do, like I'm not charging you for this conversation, but if people find it valuable, they're free to, to donate, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So, I mean, I'm not going to argue against a, a model of, of resource allocation and all that, which I'm following, right? I mean, I sort of give away everything for free and hope for okay. donations, so that seems like a fine so, plan so to me. So there's no problem with that. So it's basically what you're doing on a, on a, on a bigger scale, basically, is that we're... We're sharing resources uh, and a set of predetermined decentralized rules that are overseen by an autonomous corporation. Is that not Well, except or? that my, uh, the, the way that my show works, or I guess the degree to which it doesn't work, is not <laughs> a very big plus for the, the Venus Project approach or the, the Zeitgeist approach because the vast majority of people to my show consume significant resources and, and expensive resources like we just dropped uh, over four th- almost $5,000 on server uh, um, uh, bandwidth 
and they mm-hmm. don't donate, right? So my donation uh, base is maybe a, a percentage, maybe a percentage and a half of total S- listenership. So most people so will consume without providing anything of value in return, and they're a net cost, and they're actually supported by the few people who do uh, actually right. donate. So I'm not sure so, and how that... And you're still able, and you're still, still able to, to do it, only by mm-hmm. having a very small percentage. So it would be the same thing. I mean, with, with the automation technology that's, that's available it would really only require a very small percentage to actually be inputting anything. If we spend more resources trying to stop the freeloaders and the problems like that, that, you know, you, you, you don't you know, tr- act actively try to stop people from listening that don't donate in the same way that in a resource-based economy, you know, people are free to choose if they want to be a freeloader. And that's just part of, you know, that's just part of the way it is. Okay, so what if somebody in your city wants to start buying and selling stuff for a price? That's fine. They don't have to, but they can. Okay, then I, I don't have any disagreement. I mean, if, if there's no initiation of force and no violation of, of property rights, then I don't see uh, any. I think I would be fascinated. I, I think it would be a disaster because of the price calculation problem outlined by Mises like almost 100 years ago. But, right. well, um, there, you I know, mean, I mean, little... sometimes people have to learn by experience who don't want to learn by theory. But uh, sure. I have no... Um, uh, I have no issues with people starting whatever social experiments they want. Sure. Okay. So I think I mean I think the main the main takeaways is though is that you know it's with with you know your example of printing your own phone with with three D printing and open source technology and um, you know kind of the decentralized computer network you literally could in your home print the phone with your features that you'd wanted. So yes, needs and wants are infinite but so is customization when you're given the, the access to the raw materials. But you know what's kind of funny, Matt? It's, it's like all the technology which this, uh, the, the resource-based economy movement says is the solution has all come from mm-hmm. the free market, right? It, I agree. None of it has come from central planning at all. There have been no I, cell phone I, I, innovations, to my knowledge, that have come out of Cuba or, or North Korea. And I'm not trying to say that, that it's exactly the same. What I'm saying is that you say, well, we have these great, this great technology now, so we don't need the free market. But it is the free market that is providing uh, all of this technology that you say right. makes the free market unnecessary. Uh, it just seems kind of odd if you sort of understand that perspective. Well, I understand the perspective. I mean, the caterpillar is beautiful in and of itself, too, but the butterfly is even greater. You know, the free market is a necessary step to creating the technology. And yes, I think we can do better. And I think for me, you know, I, I, read, I listened to your, your diagnosis of the maybe underlying drive for the resource-based economy for people. But for me, it's a simple, it's a matter of efficiency. I don't think everyone on, on my street needs to own a lawnmower, you know, if we could all have access to the lawnmower when we needed it. Or yeah, I mean, this is a, it's kind of a unique example because I don't know if people will be cutting well. Grass I mean, but have long, you but. have you ever tried setting something like that up in your neighborhood? Um, I actually have. I'm actually working on a project right now that's uh, it's a sharing system for Wi-Fi. So yes, I have. Okay, but I mean, Wi-Fi is not quite the consumable resource in the way that a lawnmower is. Have you ever tried setting it up uh, in a fixed? I mean, I'm a big one for experiment on your theories before you proclaim them as the solution to the world's ills. So have you tried setting up this um, share and share alike? Because you're going to be dealing with the same kind of human beings in the future 
hopefully, I mean, that we that we are now. Now, I mean, I know that I say, well, in the future, we'll have fewer sociopaths, have fewer violent people. But that's because, mm-hmm. of course, there is a significant amount of science that shows that uh, the right treatment of children in childhood reduces the prevalence of evil to uh, um, almost ins- uh, to to something of almost insignificance. So if you feel that that people can share lawnmowers, um, have you ever tried doing that with a fixed good like a lawnmower or a car or a bicycle or something like that? Uh, I have not, no. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's not possible. I mean, (laughs) well, no, it means that you haven't done it yet. You you think that it's going to solve the world's problems, but you haven't tried to solve any of your problems. I think we both, we both agree. We don't live in a, in a free society. So we can't really say since I haven't tried X in this society, it's not possible in Y society. No, 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 no. I, I have tried the non-aggression principle and property rights in my own life considerably. Uh, so everything that I, you know, I say, go to therapy. I've, I've gone to therapy. I say, treat your children gently. Um, I treat my child gently. I say, don't have aggression in your relationships. I don't have aggression in my relationships. I have assertiveness, but I don't have aggression. So I'm not talking, uh, when I advocate certain things, I'm not talking about things that I have not tried to like for, for decades myself. So sure. I guess well, my question the problem is, I see, the problem is, I, I understand I, the problem I see is that Someone would have to buy the lawnmower to start with because we're. No, everyone can chip in. Yeah. So I. All right. Maybe. So should I? Should I test this for you? Or should I? I mean, are you? Not for me. It's not my system. It's not my system. The 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 resource based economy is not my system. But for you, if you want to have the confidence to say that your ideas work, then you should put them into practice uh, in your own life. Is that not a reasonable request? I mean, if you you wouldn't Uh, want to be the fat guy with the diet book, right? I, I understand your point, but I don't think we live in the society and it's not because we, we don't live in the correct society to set up the test properly is basically my point. But So if you had a different kind of human being, your society would work? No, no, not at all. Wait, no, not at all. For what? I don't think there's any quote unquote different human being. I don't think that's. Wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that with society as it is, it won't work. And society is nothing but human beings, composed of human beings. And if human beings aren't going to change, then it will never work. Is that what okay, well, I guess my point, my, my point is that I, with the existing government coercion, then I guess, with the existing lack of a free market. Oh, okay. So, so you would be behind a transition to a stateless society where we would be free from the coercion of the government. And then you would make the case for the resource-based economy to people in a state of freedom. I think it's I think it's necessary actually. I think I don't I don't think we can go from this society to the uh, resource based economy. I think we the free market is the necessary step. Well, fantastic. Then then I think we are on the same same side. We're both saying, you know, let's let's get the gun away from the children's heads and then figure out if they if they want peanut butter or ice cream. Uh, let them decide <laughs> for themselves with us making but, the case or whatever. Uh, so, okay. uh, I think that we're on the same page then if we're both dedicated towards the elimination of the existing status paradigm, and then in a free society we can make a case for whatever we think is beneficial after that, then I think yes. that it's, uh, it's fantastic. I think that we're exactly on the same page, and I, I, I think that's great. Big hug. Uh, you can't see the video, but yeah, <laughs> big full full hug. Can well, I ask I you a question? The, the, yeah, sure. Uh, what was your uh, infancy and toddlerhood like? Uh, grew up in a very good household. Uh, was Catholic, but very peaceful and very loving. And your mother was home 
uh, when you were yeah. a baby? Yeah. And your father was it was obviously was and is still around. Yes. There's, there's, and there's you have together. you have a great relationship with both of them. Yes, I do. And you are religious. No. So you are an atheist. Uh, yeah. And how are they with your atheism? Um, they've accepted it. What do you mean? They, they, but they're still religious, so that they think you're going to hell. No, they, they know that I'm. They don't think you're going to hell. No. So I'm sorry. I'm I'm no theologian, but I thought that was kind of the Catholic thing that you had to embrace Jesus and accept him as your Lord and Savior, or you go to hell. No, I think actually the Pope just came out and said that people that aren't religious will still go get into heaven. So. Well, but that's not how they were raised, right? Um. I, I, mean, don't, I, I don't assume know you came out as an atheist that. before. I'm not trying to pick holes. I'm just really trying to understand. So did you come out as an atheist before the Pope made his proclamation? Yes. And did they believe you were going to hell when the Pope said you were going to hell? No. So they put their judgment above the Pope and above the Bible, actually. Um, I think they put their own rational thought above that. Well, but not to the point where they would reject a deity, right? Correct. Okay. So, so it must be quite <coughs> well, a relief that the Pope said that you, you get to go to heaven too, right? For them. I guess so, yeah. That was, that was nice. But I think and my how overall... how would you have as a child? Uh, I was spanked here and there. And how often mostly, were you spanked? Um, 3.7 times a week. No, I, I don't know. I, very rarely, few and far between, maybe once a month, twice a month. So you would get between 25 and 50 spankings a year? That seems a little high, actually. No, that's maybe, what you told me? Yeah, I know. When you, when, you, when you scale it out like that, I think maybe 15 to 20 a year. Okay, so 15 to 20 spankings a year. And how long did that yeah. occur for? Um, maybe until four or five years old. Oh, so until you were four or five? Yeah. And when did it start? I, I'm not sure exactly, but... Two or three? I'm, I'm not, yeah, I mean, I can only remember so back. I, can, I can't really remember too clearly. But maybe two or well, three. Well, have you yeah. asked your parents? I mean, it's kind of an important question. When did you first start hitting me, right? No, I haven't asked them that. I mean, I think it's kind of important just in terms of your own development as a human being to know when your parents started hitting you, right? I mean, if it was two or one or six months or three or whatever, that may have I, I don't, some I don't. I know for a lot facts. of people, I understand that for you it's a big point. I don't think for me it's not a huge part of my development. It's no, Matt, but, Matt, Matt, come on, come on. It's not for me it's a big point. Like it's just some personal thing, right? You understand that there's a lot of science behind this, right? Yeah, I do, for sure. So it's not just me, right? <clears throat> for sure it's not an easy thing to bring up but maybe i'll maybe i'll bring that up for sure that's good it's a good point and if your parents stopped hitting you when you were four or five years old what was the discipline replaced by um mostly like just grounding and like cutting me off from friends and stuff but they didn't hit you uh, uh, after you were four or five no 
and they brought you to church. Uh, I would assume they brought you to church at least once a week. I mean, this isn't too pertinent to what I wanted to talk about, but I no, mean, we can get into it. it. No, it's extremely pertinent. Uh, and the reason I'm asking, look, you don't have to answer any of this, of course, right? I mean, if you, but, but I, of course, if you've probably heard, I have a, a theory, right, about why right. people are drawn towards a resource-based economy. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard the theory. It doesn't really matter if you have or not. Uh, but uh, it's important for me to get the information. You certainly don't have to provide any of it. But uh, there's a reason why I'm asking, which is not to try and poke holes in your family history, but just to try and understand why somebody might be drawn to a resource-based economy. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was raised in Catholic school. So, yeah, I went to church weekly. And when did you first learn about uh, hell? Um, four or five. Little. And what's the story, of course, that if you don't obey God or the priest or your parents or Jesus, then you go to hell and burn for eternity? Yeah. I never really believed it, though, to be honest with you. You never believed it? What do you mean? No. Well, I mean, I, I could tell, I, you know, I, could, I, was, I was actually, my parents had told me that I was never really, never really even believed in, in Santa. I could just tell there wasn't something rational about it. So I could just, you know, I, I could kind of tell so, that that uh, wait, didn't wait, make so, sense to me. So at the age of, of five, I think you said, or so, at the age of five, your parents uh, told you or, or supported the idea that if you disobeyed these invisible entities that you would go to hell and you didn't believe that. So did you think they were lying to you? Um... I think I'm not sure if I thought they were lying. I think they just thought the wrong thing. Well, if they I, told you something that you didn't think was true, then clearly you thought they would be lying to you, right? Well, people can be wrong without lying. They just don't know that they're wrong. So you thought that they were uh, in, in error and they didn't have yeah. the reasoning capacities that you had as a five-year-old. Right. Right. And were you able to talk to them about your doubts at that time, or your not even doubts, but your outright rejection of the central tenet of the faith? No, I didn't. Why not? Um, because it was a very important part of their life, and if it didn't hurt me, it didn't. Uh, it wasn't my position to tell them everything they thought their whole life was wrong. And did you continue to go to church after this time? Mm-hmm. For how long? Um, through high school. And so you kept your... Were you an atheist when you were a child, or were you simply... Did you reject certain aspects of the faith? Just rejected certain aspects. I mean, I agree with, you know, do unto others as you want done to you. I, I mean, I agree with a lot of the points. It's, no, but I mean was, the deity aspect, right? Right, right, yeah. When did you become an atheist? Um, the day I was born. No. Um, <laughs> well, we're all born atheists, of course. Yeah, quite right. Um, maybe uh, five, six years ago, maybe. Maybe eight, maybe, no, like, maybe more like 10 years ago. And when did you tell your parents that you were an atheist? Um, about the same time. Oh, about 10 years ago? Yeah. And how old were you then? 18. Oh, you were 18 then? Right. So for 15 years or so, you had to keep secret your rejection of um, 
the central religious tenets that your parents were pushing on you. Mm -hmm. And did you have to keep that secret from your friends as well? Or were you like a, a secret cabal of <laughs> Hogwarts dwelling atheist worshippers? <coughs> no, I wasn't. Uh, it wasn't anything I kept too secret, no. From your friends, you mean? Right, right. Right. Do you think that having to keep a very important secret from your parents might have had a negative impact on the relationship? Um, I don't think so, no. All right. Well, I won't, uh, I won't push that then. I think everyone can judge for themselves the quality of a relationship like that. It involves hitting and deception and, and avoidance and so on. Uh, not to say that your parents are bad people or anything like that, but if I were keeping a very central secret uh, from my parents and going along with their wishes, though I found them to be irrational and frankly quite destructive in terms of the telling children of, of hell at the age of five, um, I would not necessarily characterize that as ideal uh, or optimal. So, and, and um, how does that relate my, my, to... My, sorry, go ahead. This, and how does that relate to the resource-based economy? Well, look, if, if you're, I, th I think you, you need to be delve deeper into self-knowledge I, I believe me I well okay go on well I mean I, th I think that you need to de delve more deeply into self-knowledge uh, this is just the old Socratic commandment know thyself you need to delve more deeply into self-knowledge before prescribing a universal end or solution to the world's uh, ills and um, uh, so uh, that's just just a thought right I mean you, you can say to me sure. that you have perfect self-knowledge and you know I'm certainly not going to argue that point with you that's something which uh, is up to you to decide but uh, i think there are some conversations to have with your parents i think it must have been quite difficult to keep that secret from your parents while being put in a catholic school and being an atheist from a fairly young age or at least a significant skeptic towards the religion uh, that's not a mm -hmm. particularly good solution i also think that if you can't talk to your parents about things that are very important to you until you're 18 uh, that indicates uh, a lack of openness and a lack of honesty and a lack of mutual respect in the relationship i think that's uh, that's a problem. Uh, I do think it's important to talk about the hitting. If your parents were hitting you when you were, uh, I don't know what the starting age was, um, but if they were hitting you, uh, yeah. you know, 20 times a year uh, up to the age of four or five, if they started when you were two or three, that's, you know, 40, well, to, 60, uh, 40 to 60 hits. Uh, hitting sequences from parents, that's kind of scary, particularly when you're that age. Mm -hmm. So uh, these I, are just some things about to, it. To, to work on and to talk about with your parents mm -hmm. and to, to figure out yourself. But um, when you say you have a, a great relationship with your parents, but there's a lot that would indicate that there's things that might need to be worked out in terms of openness and connectivity, um, that's where I would focus on. If I were you, again, you know, whatever you want to do is whatever you want to do. But I think mm -hmm. before saying, here's how we should design uh, a city of the future in 200 years, uh, these, I think these kinds of conversations would be more essential just to make sure that... Um, you know, like I, I have this belief that uh, a desire for a society or a city where things are provided to you uh, in ways that we really don't understand, that this is hearkening back to uh, to toddlerhood and to early childhood. And well, I, I, if, know, um, I, I, I listened to you. Yeah, I listened to the video, but. The, oh, well, uh, then why were you asking? Hang on, wait, wait. If you knew, if you were, why were you asking me then why it was important to talk about this sort of history? Wait. Well, no, I mentioned that uh, I, I had listened to, to your video, and I know that you have an underlying premise about where these needs or these unmet needs are arising. This um, you call fantasy. I understand that, but I don't. I mean, in my particular case, 
how does that transcribe to my desire for more efficiency and sharing and peace in the world? Well, uh, it is um, it is the idea, of course, that unmet needs in childhood that are unprocessed emotionally, that unmet needs in childhood that are unprocessed emotionally, leave us for a yearning, leave us with a yearning for some external situation or state that is going to finally give us what we needed when we needed it in the past. And yeah. this is I why think it's, it's the, a method these, of resource these... distribution, just like the market system. I, it's, I'm sorry? It, it's a method of distributing resources, just like the market system. It's no, it's no deep... Yes, but it's a parental to... method of, of distributing resources, fundamentally. This is what central planning is. It's a parental method. And, and well, look, I mean, central. there's a reason, there's got to be a reason why the terms are so vague. The implementation concepts are so vague. There's got to be a reason why you can't get straight answers about stuff uh, where, you, you know, you say, well, you can't have this in a price system. Well, what if somebody wants to use a price system in this? Well, that's fine. It's okay. Well, you know, there's got to be a reason why it's so vague and, and so hard to talk about. Like I've written books and, and done hundreds of podcasts on how things could conceivably work in a stateless society, using historical examples, using my business experience, using free market examples. I've had experts on the system which can talk about how healthcare can be provided in the absence of a state in a free market, how charity can work, the friendly societies, uh, how national defense could be achieved in the absence of a state, how roads could work. I mean, we've gone into exquisite and explicit detail, or at least I have, and I know lots of other thinkers long before me have. You can read David Friedman's The Machinery of Freedom. You can read stuff by Murray Rothbard. You can read stuff, I mean, you name it. Uh, you, you can find very detailed uh, examinations of exactly how this stuff could practically work. And yet when we talk to the resource-based economy people, we get a whole bunch of hippy-dippy, wouldn't it be great if we could all have stuff for free? And then we say, well, how could this possibly work? Wait, how do you overcome but didn't I outline, that, that was the whole point. basically that was say, the whole point of here is, well, there's going to be push the buttons and an algorithm. In. I mean, that's a complete fantasy. Just talk about the Bitcoin. My whole point of calling in was not to talk about my childhood, etc. It was talking about the technical nature of a decentralized autonomous corporation like Bitcoin, which is agreed which upon, decentralized. Which you said, you push a button and you get what you want. That's magic. If you want to hyperbolize it, yeah. Well, you know, well, no. people, a lot of people would have thought the internet was magic too. I mean, there's things that we don't comprehend and I don't have all the answers to how everything would work. But yes, you press a button and you can 3D print the boards to assemble your own cell phone. Yes, that's, it seems like magic today, just like a car would seem like magic to someone a thousand years ago. No, no, no. But the methodology of producing a car was understood a thousand years ago. Right, Because basically you say, well, we'll have a chariot of fire which will uh, burn an engine inside itself and we will put it together exactly the same way pretty much that you assemble I, a chariot. I outlined, right? I, just, I, just, I, I outlined for you the decentralized open source way that No, that these are just work. buzzwords. They're not – these are just buzzwords. No, they no, don't mean not. anything. No, they're not. They're really not. Okay, so let's say, uh, let's say uh, 10,000 people want a new cell phone but you only have – parts for 2000 so what happens you someone somewhere can figure out a new material that could be used to make uh, the excess need you understand that's not an answer right because in the price uh, system what happens is if there's if there's more demand than there is supply then the price for whatever goods and services are required to satisfy that demand, the price for that goes up, which draws resources in uh, to produce well, the extra phones okay. as quickly as humanly possible because people really want to make a profit. 
What so that's an answer. That, that's a real answer about how things will work. Just saying someone's going to invent something that's going to solve the problem is actually not an answer, right? You know that. Okay. Well, what if three billion people want a cell phone today and there's not enough resources? I mean, what what happens then? It, it, I mean, but if there's not enough plastic or not enough silicone in the world to meet the demand, then what? I mean, that's like the same question. Well, but but the mechanism is the price mechanism. You're just saying someone's going to do it. Why? Out of the goodness of their heart, because they feel like doing it, because they don't have anything better to do that day, because they finished Candy Crush, right? In the price mechanism, the motivation, of course, is that price, which is really the most important thing in a market economy, price is something that's kind of dismissed like a little price tag or whatever, but price is absolutely essential. Price contains within it a, a, a such a staggering amount of information that it's something that cannot be replicated in any central planning system. This is why one of the main many reasons why central planning systems always fail is that price contains such a staggering well, it's decentral. amount. It's a decentral of, planning. It's decentralized planning and not central planning. What is decentralized planning? A resource-based economy. No, now you're just substituting one buzzword for another. What is it? Decentral, just like the Bitcoin network. I was, I've been trying to harp on this. It's decentralized, so there's no one authority that everything is agreed upon by all the nodes or people, whatever you okay, want to call Okay, so if it's a decentralized, sorry, if it's a decentralized economy, then if 10,000 people want cell phones and there are only 2,000 cell phones, what happens? I don't know. Because nobody's I, I responsible for, for, for meeting that need, right? <clears throat> You're right. I mean, I, I don't know the answers to, to every question. And no, 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 this is not, this is my first question. This is not every question. This is my first question about practical implementation. And look, I'm not, I'm not trying to be annoying and I'm, tr I'm not trying to be a prick to you. I'm really not. I, I know there's no answer. Like, I, I, I mean, I know. I've been doing this for 30 years. I know that there's no answer. But it's important for you to know that there's no answer. And it's important for you not to retreat into the magical thinking of, wouldn't it be great if? And yeah, it would be great if we could snap our fingers and have everybody's needs met in the world. Of course, it would be fantastic. It'd be like saying, well, snap our fingers and have everyone cured of, of every horrible disease in the world. Absolutely. That's a wonderful desire. And the, how you go about it is the key, right? Are you going to actually go and get your PhD in molecular biology and actually start sweating and using Petri dishes or whatever it is that you do to cure these diseases? It is important that you know what happens when 10,000 people want a cell phone and there are only materials for 2,000 cell phones. Because that is, if that, if that condition never arose, there would be no such thing as economics. There would be no such thing as a market, right? That but condition will there would arise be such a wide, everywhere, all there the time, be, under all conditions, no matter what. Can't you see a, a possibility that there's such a wide variety of types of cell phones and materials that are used to create a cell phone that with all the resources on the planet being accessible, that there would be some way to make a cell phone? Scarcity. Look, look, you, you, scarcity is a fact of nature. It cannot course, be wished so. away. What you're basically saying is I'm going to apply the infinity engine to this problem of scarcity. In other words, I want to envision a situation wherein there is no such thing as scarcity. But the problem is, Matt, scarcity is a fact of life. It is a fact of nature. Resources are finite. Life is finite. But can we re recycle? Finite. Can't we recycle and you know reuse all other resources that are being thrown away in landfills right now? I mean... Well, maybe, we maybe, but, but the question is, recycling is not magic either, because recycling requires energy. 
right? Someone's got to go pick that stuff up. They got to drive it somewhere. They got to apply energy to break it back down into its component parts. They've got to apply energy to reassemble it. Is recycling more cost efficient than making something new? Well, only the free market will tell you that. Well, not necessarily. I don't think that's true. I think the autom- it could be all automated. I mean, we can have solar panels that generate electricity. I mean, solar panels are incredibly expensive, and solar panels are very expensive, inefficient. Expensive. The, expensive isn't the paradigm. We're not. We're talking beyond the it price. It is. No. No. Mechanism. No. Exp- it's the, the, because price is not arbitrary. I'm sorry to interrupting. Price is not. Well, we'll just make them free. They're expensive for a reason. They're expensive because they consume a huge amount of resources to build and return a very small amount of energy. Right, I, so I, so I, I this, this is the, the price tells you that if you gave everyone uh, solar panels, we'd all starve to death because it would require more energy than the world has at the moment, uh, and there'd be nothing left to 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 grow crops with or to harvest crops. So price tells you something very important. Now, of course, I hope, like you do, that we can drive solar panels down. I'd love to drape something on the roof and and have my power set. The problem is, of course, storage, cloudy days, uh, uh, extended periods of darkness for well, nighttime where you get less daylight and more nighttime and so lots of problems with with this kind of stuff and i've looked into all of this stuff right to try and find some other way to to get energy to my house and and all of that kind of working on some stuff but it's really it's really complicated and uh, you can't just create a situation where you can wish scarcity away through 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 the magic of technology technology is not magical uh technology as you know is very prosaic is very engineering based so I think it's – look, I, I applaud your desire. I really do applaud your desire to make the world a better place. I think we all want that. But you have to really resist. Like you say you didn't like Santa Claus and you rejected hell and you rejected the Pope and you rejected Catholicism when you were five. So I'm saying go back to that five-year-old and, and reject the magical thinking that there's any way to snap your fingers and eliminate scarcity. Scarcity is always going to be a fact of nature. Even if we were able to live forever – in a situation where there were infinite resources, uh, it would um, it would still be a problem because we still could only do one thing at a time, pretty much. So scarcity is always going to be part of human nature and, and part of our environment, at least for the foreseeable future. Now, you could say in the future, we'll transcend our bodies and we'll be able to do everything at once with no... But this is, again, is another kind of magical thinking. In order to get there, we have to make sure we allocate our resources as intelligently and competently as possible. And that means sticking with the price system, which gives you information about how many resources there are, how much energy it takes to produce stuff, uh, how much energy it takes to gather stuff and to deliver stuff. I mean, this is all what the price is going to tell you. So I'll give you the last word, then I move on to the next caller. Uh, no, that's all right. I think we, uh, I think we did a pretty thorough, you know, end analysis. So I, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, Tracy, go ahead. You're up next. Wow, uh, I thought I was last. We shuffled the deck at times. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, um, first of all, I guess I'd like to say, Steph, that. Um, really like your show. Um, I think you've said some really amazing things and um, you've really given me a lot to think about. And um, I guess I, I wanted to ask a question about, um, there was a show you did a little while ago and it was, you were talking about um, something about technology and how, you know, people are afraid of technology uh, causing unemployment or raising unemployment. Does this uh-huh. sound familiar? Sure does. Well, I, th- I think you're, um, 
I think your point of view was that that wouldn't happen because technology always leads to um, more jobs and more kinds of opportunities. Is that is that true? Sure. I mean, look, if you and I didn't have the internet and wanted to have this conversation and there was no telephone, then we would have to send mail back and forth, right, which would create work for people. So right now, just in having this conversation, we've rendered, you know, dozens of people unemployed, not to mention a few horses of the Pony Express. Uh, and so, yes, I think that you and I having this conversation has rendered a whole bunch of people unemployed. You know, when, when automatic phone exchanges were invented, all of the telephone operators, uh, they did, they lost their jobs. And and yes. now that we have uh, Outlook and, and other uh, time management and, and uh, information management and contact management systems and so on, almost nobody needs a secretary anymore. And so those people have been released to do something else and blah, blah, blah. So, yes, that's the general idea. Okay. I would like to propose uh, another theory. So I'd like to say that the, the reason that has historically been true is because there's always been some other sort of productive labor that people could do better than machines, right? Do you, do you agree that that would be sort of a logical uh, sort of premise to, if you're going to assume that there'll always be new jobs that are available to people or new ways for them to, uh, you know, trade labor for, for money or other resources, then you would need people to be able to do things better or more economically than machines in order to be hireable. Uh, I think that's a reasonable premise, yeah. Okay. Well, I think that... Sorry, just, you know, just they, to, to, to break that down into something a bit clearer for people who are not <clears throat> versed in the theories. If the only job that I'm good for is pushing a broom, if that's the only job that I can do is push a broom, for whatever reason, then if somebody invents a robot broom pusher and I'm out of a job, I'm not going to become a mime or <laughs> something like this. The only thing right. I can do is push a broom. Is that, is that what you mean? Uh, it's not quite that. What I would mean in that particular instance is that, yes, you could try to be a mime, but machines would also be able to be mimes better than you. In other words, I think that there's a reasonable possibility that we'll reach a point where machines can do pretty much anything that a human could possibly do more effectively and cheaper. And so you think that, um, that, that, that the Steph Bot 2000 is going to do a philosophy show? I think that is possible. I know, for example, now there are um, machines and computer programs that are doing mathematical proofs. And I know that there are machines that uh, basically are uh, composing music. And, you know, they're not as good as humans are at that. But, you know, in terms of sort of, you could say, perhaps the evolution of machines and technology, you know, this is all relatively new stuff and it's been accelerating pretty quickly. So I think, there, I think that even before you reach a time, like, so for example, there's probably not a lot of huge demand in the world for philosophy, even though I really enjoy what you do. There's probably, you know, sort of a, a finite, uh, you know, what is it called, a, you know, demand for that, right? And so, you know, if well, there's there were a, finite, a number sorry, of machines... Yeah. No, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt your flow of thought. Go ahead. No, I, I mean, if there, you know, so you'd be competing with machines that might be as good as you, and maybe, I don't know, maybe the world can only, uh, you know, 
Well, another sort of part of this, I would say, is that, you know, really in terms of like the internet and stuff, like kind of only the best of the best are going to be what people are interested in paying attention to, right? Okay. Can you get to the point? Sure. So I think that basically even before you reach the point where, um, you know, machines can do every single thing better than human beings, which I do think will happen, there will no. be fewer and fewer opportunities. Okay. No, that can't Why do you think Sorry. that's true? <laughs> Sorry to okay, be late. well... Um, so no, let me sort of give you an example. So so in Japan, okay. they have, I was showing this to my daughter on YouTube the other day. So in Japan, they have these robots that are just astounding. I'm sure they're not just in Japan, but the robots can assemble cars like, oh my God, it's amazing, right? Now, of course, one of the reasons why those robots are there is because of government controlled and protected unions, right? Like, as you know, the, the big three car makers in the US are primarily in the business of delivering healthcare and pensions to retirees. And in order to do that, they have to sell some cars because yes, the unions right. have become so ridiculously overpowered through government forced protection that replacing a union worker uh, is much more valuable because they're so overpriced. So because the union members are so overpriced, that creates a huge incentive, a non-market incentive to invest in labor-saving devices, right? Like if, yes, if, yes. Right. So if every waiter, if you had to pay every waiter $1,000 an hour, automated waiters would show up in about two weeks. Right. Do you understand? Right. Like it, it would not be a market driven thing. If the government said all waiters have to be paid $1,000 an hour, they would just get replaced by robots or by counters where you'd go up and get your own food or whatever, because nobody even pay $10,000 for a meal. Right. Sure. So that's sort of one thing to understand that a lot of the automation is being driven by state power uh, and, and, and is being driven artificially. Now, when you're a capitalist, um, sorry to be uh, asked that annoying question, but have you run uh, a capital-intensive business ever? No, I mean, I have not. So Okay, and I'm, I'm not trying to catch you out. I just wanted to, to understand where I needed to speak in terms of language. So with no, a capital-intensive business, the question is, are you going to spend $10 million to, uh, to upgrade your machinery? Right, that, that's your question. And now the only reason that you would spend $10 million to upgrade your machinery is if you expected more than $10 million return in investments in some reasonable period of time, right? Yes. So what I think is that... So sorry, that let me just, cost... let just finish the... the okay, story. go So ahead. imagine you're in a town and you employ 100 people in your car factory. And let's say you're in one of those Stephen King domes or something in your self-sufficient economy. I know it all doesn't make sense, but let's just go with me for a sec. Sure. Now, if you have 100 employees in your car factory and that's the only money that comes in and they can't leave or can't come back, you would not invest in robots to throw those hundred people out of work because then they would have no money with which to buy whatever you're producing. And so it would make no sense to, to automate that. Does that, does that make sense? Cause they, they have no jobs. They have no income. They can't buy what it is that you're producing. So it would not be a productive investment. The way that, that we invest in machines to automate things is to increase our profit. Now, to increase our profit, people have to have money in order to buy whatever it is we're making more efficient, right? And so if, you're purchase, if you wiped out all purchasing demand in the world, you would never do that because then nobody would be able to buy whatever it is that you're producing. So there's no way that um, in a free market, there's no way that a, a significant portion of people would be unemployed as a result of automation, because 
the dollar you would be investing in that automation would be to drive down purchasing demand for the very products that you're producing and that would not be efficient. Does that make sense? Yes, I, I agree with everything that you've just said there. And, and I think that I might have to puzzle over some of those uh, components a little bit. Uh, but so, all right, so for example, now we're not in a free market, right? And so, you know, you could, uh, I think that the price of automation is coming down and down and down. And, you know, well, for and sorry, example, the other factor too is that when you throw people out of work in the current market system, they have artificially stimulated demand through things like welfare and unemployment insurance and so on, which gives the money to buy things even though they're out of work, which raises the desire, it raises the desire to automate your machinery. Because if you yeah, threw everyone I'm, out of work and they didn't have any money to buy your stuff, you'd never invest in something like that because you'd go out of business too. But now sure. you have uh, artificial demand being created by the government giving unemployment insurance and so on. And that's not the same as savings, right? If, if people have savings, that's great. Uh, uh, because yeah. that actually is what's used to invest in, you know, if people believe their savings while they're unemployed, that's fine because they've saved money, which has driven down the cost of borrowing, which means it's easier to, to invest in and cheaper to invest in capital goods and so on. So there's a lot of things that have kind of messed up the, the kind and amount of automation that is occurring uh, at the moment that would not be the case uh, in the free market. But there's just no way you could drive everyone out of work. With the caveat that if you had, you know, a magic switch like, like Matt, our first caller, was talking about, that everything could be produced for free and it was infinite, then you wouldn't care, right? Then, then you would only work for pleasure. You'd only work fun. I'd love to get to a society like that. I think it would be great. I think the only way we're going to get there is, is through a free market. In fact, I know that the only way we're going to get there is through a free market. But um, there couldn't possibly be an investment that would reduce demand more than the, than the profit you would make from that investment, right? That would be basically I investing in machinery to fire your customers, or to reduce their purchasing power below what they would be able to afford. So, um, so for instance, if, if you were to say to a, a worker in a factory that made cars, uh, if you were to say to him, you, well, you make $30 an hour right now, but if we automate this process, you will be able to buy a car for a dollar, but you'll lose your job. But everyone right. would be able to buy a car for a dollar. I mean, just making something up, right? Sure. Then, I mean, he would actually save quite a bit of money, as would everyone else. Because instead of spending twenty or fifteen or thirty yeah. or ten thousand dollars for a car, you buy one for a dollar, and there'd be all this other stuff you could then buy, which would stimulate demand in other industries, or you'd put it in the bank, which would stimulate demand in capital investment and product improvements or whatever, like like big term, long term investments. So if you re if re reduce the price of something uh, through automation, it it uh, it saves everyone a lot of money, and they then will either save that money or spend that money, both of which creates opportunities in in other fields. I, I agree with everything you said. So perhaps I should uh, make this a little more concrete and see what your opinion and what the outcome is. Okay. So I think that there's a, a very high probability that in the next ten to fifteen years, McDonald's and all the other um, fast food restaurants will be able to automate the restaurants to the point where they only need one manager in each store, which yeah, will great. basically get rid of hundreds of thousands of jobs, right? Yeah. Now, good. I'm not sure. I'm okay. I'm good with that. I think also what's going to happen in the, probably that same time frame is we're going to have self-driving cars, which Fantastic. will basically get, yes, right. It'll get rid of taxis. It'll get rid of public transportation and all kinds of other stuff, right? That is hundreds of Well, it wouldn't get rid of public jobs. transportation. 
I think it would. It wouldn't get rid of either of those things. It would get rid of taxi drivers and bus drivers, but not taxis and public transportation. Right. Oh, right. It wouldn't get rid of taxis. Okay. So, look, I I accept all of that. And and so what? I mean, so the fact that we don't pick crops by hand has released a whole bunch of people to not pick crops by hand, but instead do other stuff, right? I mean, we could get rid of unemployment tomorrow if we banned farm machinery. We would just half of us would starve to death. That's the problem, right? I'm, I'm totally with you on that. So there are all these people who are now going to be looking for jobs. And yep. I guess I'm not completely convinced that the people who are working at these jobs are going to be able to be robotics programmers and, you know, all that, right? Not everyone might be able to do that. But so what? Right? Well, what are they going to do? I mean, the because whole problem is all of the low skilled jobs will be gone, right? I mean, Say we again. don't even know what the stock price of Apple is going to be in 10 minutes from now. I mean, if, if we did, I'd be making a whole bunch of different phone calls right now, right? Fair enough. We don't know. Right, the whole point is nobody knows. Nobody Fair knows. Enough. But I'll tell you this, that McDonald's is only going to be investing in replacing workers with machines if they expect to make money from it. And the way of that course. they're going to make money from it is they're going to be able to charge less for their food, Right. Right. Or and deliver more food, whatever it is going to be. It's going right. to be, be more efficient. It's going to be better. And so what oh, that I'm... means is if you save, let me finish, if you save 50 cents on your burger, then that's 50 cents you have to spend somewhere else, which is going to create demand somewhere else, right? So right now, a lot of really stupid jobs have been automated and people are generally still employed. You know, I mean, I, I don't right. think there's many people... Uh, who you could say that the summit of their intellectual ability is to push buttons at, at a McDonald's cashier or at a, a Walmart ca- I mean, God, don't you want to release people if you ever had one of those jobs? My, just make you want to swallow a shotgun half the day. It's so Absolutely. ridiculously boring and such a, a terrible um, uh, misuse of, of the incredible potential of, of what a human being can do. Uh, so, yeah, God, let's let's just get people out of this brain dead stuff. And, you know, they don't then have to become neurosurgeons. There's tons of other things. And who knows what industries are going to be created when automation replaces this stupid stuff? I mean, maybe there's going to be a teleportation devices that people are going to need to manage or or to to fix or to install or who knows what? I mean, who knows? There's just no way to know. Uh, but the idea that that automation is not our friend um, it, it's always, no, no, I mean, no, I don't no, really no. know what the point of it is. Other, no, I mean, no, that is never it has, my point. It has no. been so beneficial to us so far. It's the whole reason that you and I are having this conversation is that we don't need gatekeepers. We don't need big studios. We don't need satellite feeds. We can just do this without anybody managing the flow of information between us. And we're really happy about that. So I don't understand why people who have conversations over the internet, which hire no one, have a problem with automation, which is the only reason why they can have those conversations to begin with. Well, I don't have any problem whatsoever with automation. I think it's a fantastic thing. I do think in the long run, there will be negative repercussions of that. Well, like I said, so in the long run, so I agree. I love automation. I think it's a fantastic thing. I think it makes the world better. But like almost everything, it has a cost. And I think the long-range cost of that is going to be, it's going to, make it uh, such that we actually can't have a capitalist society because there'll be a lot of people who can't produce enough value eventually that, that automa- so you're enough. not listening to what I'm saying though automation will have stopped long okay. before that part because if you're firing your customers by automating your machinery or automating your production you won't do that because if you, if you drive down demand to the point where no one's going to be able to afford your goods you're not going to invest that you understand well yes, it's a self-limiting that- system 
I, I agree with that, but that would only be in a free society, right? In a society where the government is going to subsidize people in order to buy things, then there will be people to buy these very no, cheap No, now you're changing a story. That's not what you said. You said in the future, with automation, we won't be able to have a capitalist society. Well, I mean, will now it be you're talking about the government, which, as you know, is not part of a capitalist society. I'm, I'm totally with you on that. And all right, yeah, 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 you're, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I, I, I mixed those things up. That's that's an accurate assessment. So, um, but I guess what I'm saying is the the point that you're making that automation won't reduce the price of goods below, you know, what people, what, how, how are you putting that? I, I understand the concept. Basically, you will not invest making, in automation to the point where you just, you destroy your, the capacity of customers to buy stuff. But in the current system, you won't do that because the government will always pay people, give people money to buy stuff. Then your problem right? is not with automation. You've got to be precise here. Your problem is not with automation. Then your problem is the government. And we're, I think we're completely a, 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 in the same camp as far as that goes. You've just got to be precise about what it is that you're fighting. Your problem is not automation and neither is mine. My problem is not unions. My problem is not a resource-based economy. My problem is the initiation of force uh, in whatever form and flavor it shows up in. And I think we're the same way then. Yes, the initiation of force is causing a lot of problems where people are being thrown out of work prematurely, where there, there is the capacity to rely on artificially stimulated demand, uh, which makes the investment in these capital goods more efficient and so on. So I'm sorry, we got like four other callers. So uh, I think that we, we're on the same page. Just really focus on I've, what your issue is. Automation and throwing people out of work, that's not the problem. The problem is uh, the government managing the economy, the government managing the 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 uh, money, uh, the government regulating, hyper-regulating, controlling everything, con protecting unions, protecting corporate interests, uh, having uh, the military-industrial complex. This is the beast that we're fighting. You know, the the symptom, uh, which is you know maybe too much automation, throwing too many people out of work. That's a symptom, right? You you want to start to deal with the cause, not not the symptom. So, Mike, if we can move on to the next caller, and, and thank you for bringing that topic up. It's something that comes thank up you. a lot. So, uh, thank you. I'm glad that you brought it up. I appreciate you explaining that. All right, Joel, go ahead. You're up next. Hey, Steph, how's it going? It's going well. How you doing, Joel? Hey, pretty good. Um, I just wanted to talk about something that I was experiencing as I was listening to um, um, two podcasts. Um, there, there were recent Sunday call-in shows. And uh, they were they were entitled uh, "Your Girlfriend May Be Insane" and "Moving Towards Something Real." And as I was listening to these conversations, um, I was experiencing some degrees of or some degree of unease. And um, you know, did it happen? I, this show? I'm not sure. Um, yes, yes, it did actually. Um, oh, good. Well, when as, when did uh, it happen? This show? Um, I think. As you were talking to the first caller? When I was talking to him about his family? Mm, yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, I'm with you there. I felt I felt that unease as well. Yeah, so yeah, so, yeah, so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I was just feeling, um, um, a bit of anxiety and anger and uh, um, as I was uh, listening to these um, uh, Sunday shows and I was just wanting to figure out 
where where that might have been coming from. I was sort of mm-hmm. thinking like, um, like it might have been your tone or something, or that that's just a thought that I was having. Well, but tone I is sorry that's to interrupt. Kind of, uh, no, I appreciate. Look, I appreciate you bringing this up. The problem with something like tone is that it's a really subjective term. I think I could maybe mm-hmm. help you out. I don't want to certainly put words in your mouth, but you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Yeah. But I think that you may be feeling yeah. unease when uh, I don't believe what people are saying. Mm-hmm. Right. So with the uh, caller uh, that my girlfriend might be insane caller, which is my words, not his. Uh, he said that, you know, he, he loved this woman and so on. And I was asking him, well, what do you love about her? Uh, and we were talking about her history. And uh, he was very resistant to the idea that he may be dating a woman who is so damaged that she's not really a good candidate for a long-term loving family style marriage, romance, kids or whatever. Uh, he was very resistant to that. And the previous caller, Matt, sorry to talk about you like you're not here, Matt, but uh, the previous caller was telling me that uh, he had a good relationship uh, a great relationship, in fact, with his parents, right? And then we find out that uh, he that he was hit quite regularly as a toddler and that he had to hide his um, atheism, for want of a better word, while being put through Sunday school and uh, Catholic school all the way through high school. So for like more than a decade, he had to hide his true thoughts about reality and his true thoughts about religion from his parents, who were very religious. This does not strike me even remotely as a great relationship. I'm not saying it's terrible. I'm not saying it's abusive. I'm not saying it's horrible. Although I would certainly would say that telling a five-year-old child about hell and burning and damnation and all that kind of stuff is downright abusive. Because if I were to do that to an adult, if I were to say to an adult, you have to do what I say, or I'm going to you know, burn your kids uh, in a, an oven forever, I mean, I'd be considered, that's, that's a verbal threat, right? That is a, you would go to jail for that. That's not even verbal abuse. That's an outright verbal threat. So uh, I did not believe uh, what he said about his his parents not not that there can't be great relationships between children and parents i mean i I hope that I have one uh in uh, with with my own children, but uh, i didn't believe him, and so uh that doesn't mean that i'm right I, I could be completely wrong, but i didn't believe what the person was saying. And so what I do is I continue to ask questions, which is sort of the Socratic method, right? Because I'm an empiricist. I look for evidence as to whether things are, are true or not. And if this guy said, you know, well, I had a great relationship with my dad. You know, my dad never spanked. He never yelled. He was home a lot. Uh, he's great fun. He's a clear thinker. He taught me critical thinking, unlike religious doctrine, which I know is dangerous. Uh, and, you know, he, he's, you know, he's a great friend. He's, you know, then that would be fantastic. That would be a blow against the theory that unmet childhood needs result in an in interest in a resource-based economy. But since it is so essential, it is so essential, Joel, for parents to teach their children critical thinking, it's more important than street-proofing them. It's more important than uh, teaching them road safety. Uh, it's so important to teach children critical thinking that when I talk to someone as an adult, who lacks fundamental critical thinking skills and doesn't even know it, I know that there were significant problems with how they were raised. Right? In the same way, if you met a mm-hmm. child who's 15 and 250 pounds, you know there's significant problems with their diet at home. You don't need to be a nutritionist to know that. You just you look at that and you say, well, that kid is like lethally obese, so there's got to be some problems uh, uh, at home. And so when people tell me stuff and it doesn't make sense to me, then I will ask questions to confirm or deny their position. And Mm -hmm. 
it's now either people will say, well, you know what? Guess I guess I did say like I was hoping with Matt again. Sorry to talk about you like you're not here. I was hoping with Matt that he would say, gosh, you know, I did say that I had a great relationship with my parents. But come to think of it, I was hit a lot when I was a toddler. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly that it would stop when the kid is four or five. Spanking usually continues. It doesn't mean always, but usually. And, you know, I guess I, you know, and I asked him, I said, does having to keep a big secret about reality from your parents for over a decade have caused any problems in the relationship? And what did he say? Um, I, I don't, I don't really remember. He, he said no. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Right. So he, he, he didn't seem to say, and he also tried to say, he also tried to say, well, Steph, um, I know that you're not a big fan of spanking, right? Which is a very defensive position. And again, I understand that. I mean, he, he wants to defend his parents. He wants to feel that everything they did was right because isn't that great? But the problem is, is that if you have had negative experiences with your parents or, or anyone for that matter, and you don't process, you don't acknowledge and process them, they show up somewhere else. The craziness, the, 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 the dysfunction shows up somewhere else. And my argument, of course, is that uh, the people who are into resource-based economies are attempting to recreate a good childhood they didn't have. And they're hoping mm -hmm. that some future robot city is going to provide to them what mommy and daddy didn't when they were babies and toddlers. I think that my – and it's not that they had a bad experience as children that produces that. It's that they don't acknowledge or even know that they had a bad experience as children. Now, I would say that the argument is not proven, but it's certainly not – denied by my conversation with Matt. And um, so, and it is important. Look, I've, there's nothing I won't answer about myself. And I've talked a lot about my own personal thoughts and feelings. And if people have questions about me, I will try to answer them as honestly as possible. Everybody's got to know that that's the standard of this show. And people, as I said to him, I said, you're free to answer or to not answer. But um, I needed to know why he had this magical belief where he couldn't answer things, but had this yearning for some sort of perfect world that he had no knowledge of or understanding of or comprehension of or anything like that that's got to come from childhood and so i needed to ask him that question because or i wanted to ask him that question to find out if it was valid or not now he's obviously not comfortable with that question and the guy who had the very damaged girlfriend was not comfortable with that question either but uh, it's not you know it's not my job to make people comfortable you've got politicians for that right? you have lots of people right, who do right. that you got game show hosts and and uh, talk show hosts and all that who will do that um, my job is to try and get to the truth and to give people a conversational experience that is not common i mean why would you listen if we were just talking about the weather we're trying to have a conversation about something that's important and a lot of the important stuff is associated with with discomfort in people and they can choose to participate in the conversation or not but the important thing for me is to uh, is to get to the truth as, as best as I can. And uh, I hope that makes some some sense. Uh, and I do have to be um, not aggressive. I don't call people names, and I was you know sympathetic, I think, towards the guy. But I also can't take things that aren't true and pretend that they are. Oh, absolutely. That makes um, complete and total sense. Um, I... Uh, um I definitely think that getting to the truth is far more important than your tone. Um, well, what um, tone? I mean, if, if the tone is an issue, uh, is it that uh, I don't sound more affectionate? Um, well, I, I don't really think um, uh, it had anything to do with your tone. That's, that's just sort of the, my first reaction thought that I was having. 
and um, I, I'd sort of what I, what I was sort of curious about was you know why uh, so why why did I jump to that you know why why did I feel you know as I was listening to that um, unease and then I thought man I, I really don't like Steph's tone you know because well but as, you know after I you know that, what I'm going to ask next right but in a nice way uh, oh yeah um, childhood stuff. Yeah, how were verbal parents. conflicts uh, solved or not solved when you were a child? Oh, uh, they horribly. Uh, there was a lot of fighting and uh, uh, yelling. Um, um, uh, I'm sorry about that. That's, I mean, that's so, I mean, it's very, very, very damaging for, uh, for children, uh, for you. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you another yeah, question? That's so sad. I don't want to bypass your childhood yeah, stuff, yeah. but I'm just, well, what popped into my head was when I'm having, I guess you could call it a confrontation. It's not yelling or abusive or anything, but I try to be pretty firm in, in, in getting to the truth. But when I'm having one of these conversations that, that produce anxiety in you, is it that you feel something bad is about to happen, Joel, or do you feel that something bad is already happening? Oh, like uh, something's bad in, in the moment that's happening, I think. Uh, uh, perhaps. I, I'm, I'm not really sure, though. Uh, I, don't know, I, I, do feel, I do feel really emotional at the moment, like... Uh, really sad and a, a bit tearful uh when you asked me when that. Did that when did that start to happen uh, in you um uh, when you asked how uh, uh, uh tom uh yeah sorry uh when you asked me co how conflicts were uh resolved because uh yeah the way they were resolved as always uh really really bothered me and uh i've never really been able to talk about it well anywhere. you've come to the so, right place uh, for that because um i'm really eager to to hear what it was like for you and and what the environment was that uh, was so harmful and I can I can ask questions uh, or you can talk, whichever is is easiest for you. Oh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit and uh, yeah, yeah, like they were. Um, there was either yelling or withdrawal. Um, my mom would quite often when uh, I would. Uh, interrupt her i actually wrote an example you know, um uh yeah so she, my uh here's an example my my dad had bought me a gps once this is a bit when i was older um and um shortly after he bought me this gps um, um my mom had scheduled a dentist appointment for me and uh um, I thought that was kind of 
cool because I had a, a I had a chance to use the GPS, and so I went to my mom. And I was like, "Hey, mom, can I get the address to that dentist?" And uh, uh, she didn't really um say she had the address or not she just started rambling right and said something like oh it's really easy to get there you know how to get to uh, your aunt's house well all you have to do is drive straight down this road and make a left here and just go through all these unnecessary details and just talk in this really condescending uh age inappropriate tone you know i'm i'm 20 years did she old have, sorry right? did she know you had a gps uh, that your father gave you uh Yes, she did. Uh, uh, she, um, my dad was working in, uh, yeah, my dad wasn't even present. He mailed it, so she's the one who handed it to me. Uh, so, so yeah, she did where know. Was your, um, where was your father? Um, I think Afghanistan. Uh, he's a contractor. Oh, military contractor. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, so um, yeah, so um, when 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 she lectures me in this way, it it it's just so humiliating and so uh, it 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 really sucks, and um, and it puts me in a sort of no-win situation because. I either listen to her, which is really frustrating because she's not listening and she's talking down to me and it's just really annoying, or I interrupt her, which will make her upset and pouty and she'll just walk away, you know, or, you know, if I interrupt her enough or show any anger, yeah, yeah, like I really couldn't show anger, but if I showed anger, you know, then, uh, then that she'd probably rage or something but, but uh, so what, what so um, anyway so there would be an escalation so if you would say mom i feel frustrated and humiliated at the moment i'm not sure why but you know i just i need the address for the gps and i don't like would it be then oh you know you never listen to anything or i can't tell you anything or what i'm just trying to talk to you and you you know could you i mean you're so rude i mean i don't know where it would go but does it kind of escalate from there yeah, yeah, she she would say something like, uh, uh, "You don't need a GPS, um, but I'll, I guess I'll look for the address." And she'll she'll pretend to look around for the address and take uh, a really really long time for it or something. And uh, then I'll become. Okay, but Joel, even how more would you? Frustrated. And I, I appreciate that. I mean, I I think I get a sense of that. But yeah. how will you? disciplined when well let's start with your parents first okay so um would your parents uh, when they would would they verbally they would fight would it be like yelling yes yes and, and it, how how yelly would it get i mean would it be like uh hide in the basement uh waiting for them to throw plates or was it just a kind of snipped waspy kind of tense or or how how big would would the like was it full-on screaming were they like insults with oh, no it, shame or verbal barriers oh it, it was full-on screaming and, and cursing um i i remember one time i i was really scared in in my room and uh, i think my dad was getting 
physical or something. I don't think he hit her, but my mom uh, yelled, right, and said, Joel, come here quick. Come look at your dad. You know, and so I, I go in there, and uh, she's like, look at your dad. He's crazy, you know. Uh, and And then I just remember running back to my room and crying because it was just scary and uh, that's just the kind of person she was and what was your dad doing that your mom thought was crazy I'm not sure I I think um, he he was uh, like holding her wrist right or getting up in her face or something or screaming out at her. I, th- I think she wanted me to, to witness him being violent, uh, like physically violent, but he didn't, uh, I don't recall him being, uh, I didn't see that, but. And how often would this happen? Um, very often, um, it would, uh, uh, there was a time where it, just about every day, um, oh god, it, it would happen. Um, I mean, it pours like a a bucket full of static into your brain, living around that kind of verbal abuse and verbal tension, right? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And um, were there signs that it was coming, or did it kind of erupt out of nowhere? Oh, they. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, there, there were signs that it, it that uh, it was coming. Uh, I could, there were some times uh, um, or where my mom would say something that uh, I just knew was uh, irritating my dad, um, and. Uh, uh, but but a lot of the times um, I, I had a room outside outside of my house, um, um, you know. Eventually, I just sort of moved out in this building in the in uh, my backyard. But yeah, a lot of the times I, I still needed to get inside the house. But mo- I think most of the time um, they were already fighting uh, when I was around. And what about? So this could happen daily uh, at certain times, then I guess maybe weekly uh, at other times. And what about when somebody, when when your parents had an issue with you and wanted to communicate something to you that they had a problem with, what would happen then? Um Man, uh, I think my dad yelled at me once. Um, you know, it's uh, for some reason I'm having trouble remembering because I didn't really talk to them very much. I guess not. You, yeah, yeah. They. Uh, I don't yell at the know, office too any, much either. Yeah, if if there's any way to describe my childhood, it's just really really lonely. You know, I, I was just sort of around and just sort of trying to walk around them, you know, you know, they were a little too busy fighting and, you know, was there ever a time, sorry to interrupt. Was there ever a time where they 
sat you down and said, this, like, we're sorry, this is not good, this is not healthy, this is not right, we're going to try and, you know, even if it didn't take, was there ever any time where they even remotely acknowledged that what they were doing was negative towards, to, to you, or negative for you in any way? Um, I think my dad uh, came in the room uh, uh, after this, this uh, example, in the example that I mentioned after um, they yelled, my mom got in the car and, and uh, drove away, but uh, uh, my dad came in the room and hugged me and said, you know, I'm sorry about that. And the, did anything change after that? Uh, no. Right. No. And, uh, well, he may have been doing that because he thought she was going to go get the police or a lawyer and that he needed you on his side. Who knows, right? Oh, yeah. That's, that's a good point. Probably. I'm so, look, I just, Joel, I'm, I'm so incredibly sorry. I'm, I'm, you know, it is always shocking to me to just hear how parents can go so far off the rails and be so destructive towards each other and particularly towards their children. I mean, your goddamn parents, at least they chose each other. A man, however sick a relationship it might have been, they, your mom could get into a car and drive away and she never had to come back. And they got to choose each other. They get to date each other. They got to get engaged. They got to get married. They could leave any time. But you're just fucking stuck there, right? You didn't oh, choose yeah. it. You didn't want to, I assume you didn't want to be there a whole lot. Uh, you didn't choose to be there, and there was no place you could go as a kid. I mean, I guess you got a place outside the house, but you know that's that's not exactly a far enough orbit to not hear the yelling, right? Oh, absolutely. It was. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I could I could hear the yell from outside. I mean. I'm so I'm so incredibly sorry. That is so much the opposite of what should have been happening. I mean, you should have been in a gentle, positive, funny, warm, loving, curious environment where people wanted to know what you thought and what you felt, where uh, people could could have fun, where there was no tension. Uh, it's um, it's nothing that you should have ever been exposed to. It's it's. It's a kind of brain toxicity that shoots in like shrapnel through the eardrums and stays in your brain and festers. And I'm, I'm, I'm so incredibly sorry that you had any exposure to that at all, let alone the near constant exposure that you did have. I'm, I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you, Seth. That, it really means a lot to, to hear that. I, I don't think I've ever heard that. Um, uh, um, uh, in my life, um, other than my roommate, but um, yeah, it 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 really was um stressful and um and uh, difficult to deal with. I I did eventually um confront them about it. Um, I I, I sort of visited visited them one day and um uh, asked if they wanted to go to ihop right because i knew they they like to yell and, and escalate yeah. and i figured if we went to a uh i figured if we went to go if we went to a public place they wouldn't uh 
they couldn't get away with that. So uh, I, I sort of set them down. I sort of told them, you know, I'm, I'm still really disturbed and bothered by, you know, the yelling and the fighting, you know. And, uh, and it, you know, it, it was kind of a use, I don't know, kind of useless. They, they, my dad said, uh, oh, I'm sorry, just don't dwell on it, you know, don't, uh. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, so the people who scream at each other, sorry to interrupt, but the people who scream at each other are telling you not to dwell on things? I mean, why did they take their own goddamn advice and stop screaming at each other if they're so good at understanding how not to dwell on things? Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, what a mealy-mouthed pile of bullshit. You know, it's like saying to them, well, don't get upset. It's like, you guys spent your whole childhood getting upset with each other. Don't dwell on things. You guys spent your whole childhood, my whole childhood dwelling on things. Are you really going to give me the advice called don't dwell on things? <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't feel your outrage for you, but I should. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. It, it is it is outrageous. It, it really is. And uh, I, I think he also said, um, uh, uh, but we did have some good times, didn't we? And uh, my, my mom just. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah, they they really weren't helping themselves. But and and my mom, she's she's just a master at, at manipulation. She'll just sort of tell, uh, say say what I want to hear, right? She'll say, yeah, it it's just you know we all make mistakes, and sometimes you know we don't uh follow our own advice, you know. And I'm sorry, you know. Oh, so so your mom is very good at understanding that people make mistakes. And should be forgiven, and that's how she lived with your dad. Uh, she, you know, your dad <laughs> would make mistakes, and your mom would just forgive them because you know people make mistakes, and you forgive them because because that's what she did with your dad, right? She just he made a mistake, and she would just forgive him. Oh yeah, well, uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah it means it means that they were responsible right like if, if they openly said yeah screaming at each other is great you, you you know you should scream at us we should i'm gonna scream at the fucking waitress to bring my goddamn pancake you're gonna turn over the table if i don't think it's warm enough yeah you scream and you yell and you do it in front of cops and you do it in front of uh the teachers and you you know you you just you scream and yell at people all the time and that's how you get things in life so fuck that fuck you and they stormed out right at least there'd be some consistency, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's like would, uh, now they, they have this, they have, they know what all the virtues are. Don't yeah, well. yeah. That, People make mistakes, yeah, that, forgive. It means they're responsible, 100%. Sorry, you got yelled at a lot. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Uh, but they're responsible, 100%, because they know the virtues. Yeah, no, absolutely. My, I, I, I listened to a podcast where you you talked about some some of the worst form of uh, abusive parents are the kinds who uh, act really loving and then really hateful, like they're the the inconsistent kind. Because well, when not, they're consistent, sorry, sorry, to interrupt. It's uh, not just to be oh, more yeah. precise. It's not exactly inconsistent. What it is is that when they have power, they abuse it. And when they don't have power, they sing a different tune, right? So if a guy comes up to you in an alley and sticks a knife in your ribs and says, give me your wallet, 
And then you grab the knife away from him because you're like a ninja, Pink Panther or something. You grab the knife away from him. Suddenly he's like, hey, whoa, whoa, we can work this out, man. Hey, no need to get aggressive. But nothing has changed. He's just adapting to the new situation where you have the knife and not him. Nothing would have changed if he'd kept the knife, right? And so when you become an adult and you can confront your parents, suddenly they, they, they discover all these wonderful virtues. Why? Because they don't have power over you anymore. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that, that kind of makes me sick. You know, uh, that, 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 that really is sickening. I mean... Uh, it's a strategy. Mm, right, right. You know, like when your parents criticize each other, they have power over each other because they're married and I guess they're locked into this dysfunctional shit fest right mm -hmm. so they have power over each other because they're basically get, getting and giving what each other needs in this sort of masochistic sadistic kind of way um yeah yes but you as an adult you have you have choices right you're, you're not locked in i mean you just happen to be born into this rat's nest right you have choices and so they'll scream at each other because they have power over each other, they don't care about your opinion because they have power over you. But then when you bring it up as an adult in a public place, they're all sweetness and roses and, and zen reasonableness and blah, 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 right? Which means they can do it, right? It means they right, can right. do it. You know, I've asked dozens of times people who talk about abusive parents. Say, well, did they do it in front of a cop? Did they, were they ever caught? Did they do it in front of a preacher or a teacher? Did they do it in any, did they do this abuse in any place? where they could have suffered negative repercussions. What do people always say? No, could you say that again? I'm sorry. I, I, so I ask, did your parents do this terrible behavior in any place where they could have su suffered ne negative repercussions? Right, so oh, people they say, well, do. my dad hit me with a belt. I said, well, you know, did he ever do that in public? Did he ever do that in front of a policeman? Did he ever do that in any situation where he could have suffered negative repercussions? Oh yeah, they they never do that. Um right, which means which means that they have the capacity to restrain their behavior. Your parents have mm -hmm. the capacity to not yell at when challenged because they did that in the IHOP with you. Right, right. Which means they're not biochemical robots like you push a button and they scream and they have no choice about it. They have a choice because they were able to when confronted by you not scream. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's... You just yeah, weren't that, worth it to them as a child to restrain their behavior, and I'm sorry to say that, but it seems to be indubitably true. Your feelings, the, the, the integrity of your development, the happiness of your existence, the light of your soul, the, the joy of your mind, the curiosity of your reason, protecting that was simply not important enough for them to restrain their behavior. They self-indulgently abused each other and harmed you because you weren't worth it for them to stop. And I'm, I'm sorry because you were worth it objectively. No child should have to suffer through that kind of primitive soap opera shit scream fest. It was worth it for them no. to stop, to not do it in the IHOP, maybe because they were worried about the waiters or what people would think. So strangers, they won't do it in front of, but, but you, you're just a kid, right? 
So right, right. What do you matter? It's like I don't understand that thinking. Of all the people in the known universe that we should be good to, it is our children because they're not there by choice. They're helpless. They're dependent. They right, got no place to go. But but so often people just have the lowest conceivable standards around their own children. Like at no, did they ever stop and say, "My God, the harm that we're doing to our child must override whatever screwed up cyclone of dysfunction we've got ourselves wrapped up in." But it's like, well, you don't, you don't count. You don't matter. That's terrible, and that's that's part of what is communicated. It's not just the direct terrifying stimulation of of this verbal abuse tirade petty ridiculous embarrassing juvenile and insult to juvenile scream fest it is the feeling of being completely invisible to someone's capacity for self-restraint does that make any sense at all no absolutely that does make sense my mom would be screaming at me and the phone would ring, and she'd think it was some guy she was trying to bang. She'd pick up the phone, she'd be like, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good day. Do you know how fucking humiliating that is? Some goddamn oh, stranger. Yeah. She's all sweetness and, and light, too. While she's screaming at me like this bulging-eyed, fly-faced hydra from hell. It's... It's so, you I mean, did you have doorbell ever ring and your parents like stop and go and answer it? Uh, yeah, the, the phone would ring. Um, uh, uh, yeah, there, there were times where um, like I, I remember getting my mom a, uh, a fishing rod because she, she always thought about, uh, she would always talk about, oh, I used to fish a lot, but, uh, but uh, now I don't get to, and that and that, that really sucks. So on Mother's Day, I, I was like, oh, here you go. And uh, when I gave her the fishing rod, she was like, uh, oh, you're just trying to get me out of the house, you know. <laughs> and uh, oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, I shouldn't laugh because it's not funny, but oh, my God. Yeah, no, I understand. And uh, and and then she was on the phone with somebody in, outside, and I walked by, and she just yelled at me. Uh, I guess so the person on the phone could hear. She said, I love my rod and reel, you know. Wow. What a what a rotating hellfire hall of mirrors you lived in, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's very well put. Now, yeah. do you want me to be very, very honest with you? I've been honest with you. Yeah. I'm not holding anything back. But do you want me to be very, very honest with you? Yes. Yes. Joel. I would really like for your voice to come alive. Really? I'd like to do a Jesus Lazarus on your voice because your voice is very monotone. It's like you've gone to the other extreme, like your parents were these flared Italian insane opera singers of dysfunction and you've become very monotone. Huh. Uh, like that's, there's no that's interesting. You'll, you'll hear it. You'll hear it when when you. I mean, except when you get emotional. But you'll hear it when you listen back to the show. I hope you will. But your voice is. It sounds without energy. It sounds flaccid. It sounds almost depressed. 
Well, now I'm, I can't see you, so I don't, I don't like, I don't, I got no eye contact. I can just, I'm just going by what I hear. Mm-hmm. And I would like for you to have a little more freedom to, because you've got a lot in you that hasn't been expressed, right? A, a lot of pain, a lot of fear, a lot of anger. And so what happens is, you know, we tamp down very strongly when we feel that we can't express anything, we end up expressing nothing, right? Right, right. And I'm not saying you're not expressing anything. I mean, I think you're being admirably brave and courageous and honest. And it's not something you can just snap your fingers, but but, but what I'm saying is that, you know, people have made this sort of joke. I get this quite regularly. People will do a freeze frame of my video when I'm doing a show. You know, and, and every single frame looks like I'm simultaneously shitting myself and having an orgasm at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I am, fun. but that's just the kind of longevity that I have in those in those areas. But the 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 sense of self expression that that I get from you is quite uh, um, restrained, very restrained. Does that make any sense? Oh, that 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 makes perfect sense. Uh, um, uh, can you do well, me a silly favor? Say, yeah. Okay, try this. Oh! <laughs> Let me see if you have more than one note. Come on. Oh! Oh, you know what? That's actually. Do you sing at all? Uh, yes, I, I was in choir for a few years. Yeah, that's a that's a nice range. So you got this range. So why are you living down here in the bowels and the shoe foot footprints of the vocal sphere? This is a good question. That's uh, uh, Do you hear it in yeah, yourself at all? Uh, I do now. Now that you've pointed it out, it's it's a. Uh, it, I find myself wanting to uh, talk a little differently now. Well, I'm just yeah. I'm suggesting that I think we're supposed to kind of sing like dolphins. I mean, it, language is a sung thing. It's not you know you know that's why the Microsoft Sam voice is not was not that great. But um, I think that you probably have obviously not been listened to when you were a child, and when you're not listened to, you don't get used to changing the tone of your voice. I just mean the, the the note, changing the note of your voice to, to be impactful towards others because you're not listened to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the guy warming up his voice doesn't put a lot of soul into his scales. You know, he saves that for the actual performance when he's got an audience, right? And so if you've not been listened to a lot, then you, you don't know how to modulate your voice to, to maintain and, and provoke interest in others. Yeah. And so that's one yeah. thing. And of course, the other thing is that if you've had all these, you know, hellfire bunker buster available pyrotechnics from your parents, then you may associate vocal flexibility, so to speak, with going nuts. And so you kind of keep it at a very sane slash... Monotonous level. No, yeah, that that uh. What that I'm saying sense. is, you would give great phone sex to accountants. That's uh, <laughs> you know, gay accountants. You know, call one eight hundred Joel and uh, okay. <laughs> balance your your ledger that way. 
but but so, and, and just I just want to point that out because uh, you know how we present ourselves vocally is 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 quite important, right? Do you have trouble with eye contact with people? All right. Uh, I, I used to. Um, now I don't. Now now I'm pretty good at staring, but it does sort of feel like I'm. I disassociate or something when I when I look at people in the eyes. Like I, I don't know. I, I tend to uh, feel like I'm floating when I look at people. Uh, it's it's kind of weird. And that's probably because if you had very aggressive parents, eye contact is something which would provoke them, right? Yeah, yeah, probably. Right. Yeah. So you got that, you know, prisoner shuffle, stare at your feet kind of thing, right? And and eye contact can be very provocative. To people who have hair trigger tempers, uh, uh, eye contact is uh, like a gauntlet thrown down. It's like somebody unsheathing a sword. They they tend to get very aggressive quite quickly. So, so and and I I'm just aware of this as a you know with as a father, uh, you know, I want to make sure that I maintain eye contact with my daughter. Right. She used to tell stories looking all around the room and I'd kind of have to say, hey, I'm here and, you know, remind her that eye contact is how she should tell me her story. And since she started to do that, her tone has become much more engaged uh, because I want her to not tell the story with me in the room, but tell the story to me so that I can really understand. Because it's otherwise I found myself unable to listen very well if without any eye contact and without much modulation. Now, that hasn't been the case here because, I mean, I'm very focused on what it is that you're saying. But these are all the kinds of things that. I would imagine did not happen to you as a child, and I, for that again, I'm in, I'm incredibly sorry. But uh, uh, I would uh, I would really uh, you know it, it can be if you got an iPhone, just put put it on on a recording mode. Right, there's a PCM recorder I think for the Android. I think it's also their note to self or something you can get for the for the iPod or the Apple devices. And just record yourself in a conversation. Just play it back and hear how you sound. Because I don't think you've had that kind of feedback from some, let's say, somewhat self-involved parents. No, not not at all. Right. Yeah, and yes, they were they were very um, self-involved, very narcissistic. And I'm again, I'm I'm incredibly sorry for that. Now I know I've got some other callers. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? How was the conversation for you? I know we we touched on some pretty sensitive stuff. Oh, the the conversation was fantastic, and um, uh, thank you so much for for your help and your honest feedback. That, that's very helpful, and I look forward to uh, talking to you in the future sometime. Oh, listen, man, call back in anytime. Uh, and uh, I, uh, you know, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, if you're still in contact with your parents, I would definitely talk to them uh, more, and not necessarily in a public place, because I think you want to get their more honest reactions uh, and less tamped down. So again, it's my thought. If it wouldn't put you in any danger, yeah. I think it would be a good thing to keep talking about with them. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll definitely do that for sure. And uh, in return, I will. I would try and stop screaming at my guests. How's that? Uh, <laughs> making you feel anxious. Uh, I will. I will. No, th- no, I will think about what you said. I, I will really think about what you said. Maybe there's a better way to. You know, I want to be like water going down a hill, or if there's a better way to get to the truth, then I, I will definitely try and get there. Sometimes I do sort of give up on getting the truth with the person, and what I think of is a way to at least communicate that the person is not getting to the truth to everyone else who's listening, uh, but maybe that's not the right approach. So I appreciate you bringing that up, and I will certainly think I think about it and, and ask my friends and family. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, more than likely you're you're doing it right. You're the you've been you're the philosopher expert, but uh. 
Oh, look, I can always improve. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can always improve. But uh, so I appreciate you bringing that up. And, and you know, let me know how it goes. Uh, I, I really I really care about about what happens. And I'm again, I'm so incredibly sorry that you were in this kind of environment. Thank you, Steph. I really appreciate that. You're very welcome, Joel. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, Hunter, you're up next. Hey, Steph, how's it going? Can you hear me? Uh, it's going well, Hunter. How are you doing? Good. Uh, thank you so much for your show. I can't tell you uh, how much you've helped me as far as clarity is concerned. Um, I came from an interesting background. I was kind of a, a communist at a really young age, studied Marx, and then uh, looked at the Venus Project type. Uh, 13, I did a report on Marx and really liked it. I, um, I think I, I was very religious at an early age, and when I read... Marx's view on religion. I think it it struck so true to me that I pursued his line of thinking as far as I could. Yeah, if that makes sense. For sure. So I, it sent me on a wild ride, and I went all the way now full circle, which um, you know went through the Venus Project stage and went was introduced to Milton Friedman, and then eventually uh, followed it to its rational conclusion, and now believe that anarcho-capitalism and a free society is absolutely the best way to go. Good for you. Um, yeah, absolutely. And with the help of my girlfriend, who, uh, of course, is listening and is super excited that we're having this discussion as well. Um, I Wait, do, do, you, a, do you have a girlfriend who's into um, economics, philosophy, libertarianism, all that kind of good stuff? I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Certainly do. Now, um, I just would like to say to your girlfriend um, that... If he should ever be hit by a bus, there are about 10,000 high-quality free domain radio listeners who would uh, be very happy to take you out for a nice latte. Uh, So uh, I'm not suggesting that the listeners should have you hit with a bus. I'm just saying, should it happen, which I hope it doesn't, uh, she would not be short of quality people. So uh, just because I always get this question, like, where do I find women like this? Well, we know, I know of some, of course, I'm married to one. But um, uh, so so good for you. Uh, congratulations. Hang on like grim death. Be the best boyfriend ever. Go ahead. I'm trying. Yeah, so you and I are the luckiest one. So um, one of the questions I had is uh, in discussing this ideology and talking about if I'm coming from an argument from morality, when I explain how immoral it, I think it is, some of the things that the state uses tax dollars for, um, I'm getting pushback with people saying, if you, if you really think it's that immoral, that you, would, that you should leave. So basically, the more immoral you think something is, the more sorry, likely you should, you, should, what? you should leave the country. Um, if it, and go where? To a, well, I think generally speaking, it's either go to a state that doesn't, you know, doesn't so avidly tax, doesn't so avidly support the war on drugs, isn't such a massive, I'm in America, USA, um, doesn't, isn't such a massive, overwhelmingly sized government. Um, if, if you think that that, if you think that what you're paying for is so immoral, then you should go to a state or a country that doesn't so avidly support those causes. And would they support, if a woman wanted to get divorced from an abusive husband, would they support her having to leave the country as well? well like see, if, if, you want to, if, I, you're, if you're in a, a marriage where your husband beats you up and you want to get divorced, is it okay to say, well, you have to 
you have to leave the whole country? Well, see, I don't think it's that they're saying that I have to leave. I think it's that they're saying I, I, I think it's that they're saying the argument isn't as compelling if I if I don't. So, but wait, wait, wait. Okay, so forget the marriage thing. Forget the marriage thing. My question to them would: You play your friends, all right? I'll play you. So my question would be: How does whether I stay or leave in the country have any bearing on the reason and evidence behind my arguments? I guess it's not really about the reason and relevance that's that's compelling the argument. It's the it's what is compelling them to believe that I actually believe this. So let's say that the state. No, no, did no, no. Pay- but let's say, look, let's say you don't believe it. Does okay. that have any bearing on the reason and evidence behind the argument? Well, I don't think that it's a matter of reason and evidence that's making the argument compelling. It's, it's a matter of reason and evidence. Sorry. <laughs> it is a matter of reason and evidence. What you are being put through we could colloquially call the hoop fallacy in other words if you jump through this impossible hoop maybe i'll believe you it's like but i sh- I, I don't need to jump through any hoops i can be in okay. the kkk if i say say that the kkk is a racist organization do you say well i can't believe you because you're in the kkk does you being in the KKK or not have any bearing on whether it is a racist organization or not? It doesn't have any bearing on whether it's a racist organization. But if you're speaking out against the KKK and you are in the KKK, I think it would be reasonable to say he must no, not really no, no, dislike no. You are not the KKK. Just, yeah, look, you're not speaking out like, I just don't like the government. Right? You have recent arguments as to the morality of a state-based society, right? That it relies upon the initiation of force, right? Yeah. So the question is to your friends, does it rely on the initiation of force or not? You being in the country or out of the country has no bearing on, it's not like if you move to Morocco, two and two make five, right? If you move to Morocco, two and two still make four. I know, I've been there. They have buildings that stand up just like everyone else. I don't so, think that they, when, when I discuss this with people, the ones that understand the principles of small government, especially, they, they understand that, that the state is backed by force and that it is violence that's keeping it in place. But let's say, for instance, that the state did pick your husband and you know someone came to me and said, my husband is really abusive and in order to leave... I'll have to give him half my income. Eventually, there would be a line in which if they were beating them that bad, they would leave, right? No, no, but see, in the analogy, you can't be single. If you leave this guy, you have to go to another guy. You can't well, be single. You can't be stateless in the world. It's, it's actually illegal. Right, okay. Well, well, I definitely want to talk about that too, but there is... Let's say that there's better options, I mean, out there, right? There's other ideas that, there's other ideas, there's, you know, this, op- this situation in Chile, there's the, the Free State Project in New Hampshire or something like that. That's not out of reach. And to think that I can only, I mean, I live in California. And so huh. in all the states, you know, I, I've, you know, I have to have a license to buy a toothbrush, you know, and have 
hours of state authorized training to brush my teeth and stuff like that, right? So, and I, and the truth is, I can work anywhere in the country um, because or anywhere in the world as long as they have the internet. Oh, okay. So, so I think I understand. So, what they're saying is that England, like the British, should have run away from the Nazis. They shouldn't have stayed to fight them, right? Um. Well, because that, there were lots of places on the world where there were not many Nazis, right? I mean, you, you, the British could all have left and gone to America. Uh, the British could have gone to Brazil. They could have gone to Iceland. They could have gone to lots of places. So they should not have stayed and fought the Nazis. They should have run away to where there were less Nazis. Well, I, I understand the, uh, the analogy, and I actually have used that. But the truth is, it's not like the state is is chasing you around in that in that kind of a sense like if if we were to say move to chile i don't know that it would be similar to the nazis chasing us if they, i mean america's oh, not going to yes. chase no listen chile. if if you try to leave the united states and if you renounce your citizenship if they even suspect that it is because you don't want to pay your taxes they will they will go after you well let's say that i had to pay the taxes I mean, let's say that that was part of the exit. I mean, the exit tax, let's say that that exists. I mean, it's still right. a scale of, of avoidability, as you say in UPB. It's still a scale of avoidability. So, you know, back to the husband and wife analogy, like eventually, I think I, at least, if I was being beaten, would eventually give up half of my net worth to be but away from Sorry. Into, like into a husband that doesn't beat me as much. But you're not being beaten. You, I mean, you're not being beaten by the state, are you? I mean, they're not physically hitting you. Well, I think the argument is that they're threatening me with violence. Yes, and if you go to Chile, the same thing will happen. It is true that, that there is attacks in Chile, but the level of... I mean, I, I'm, to understand, I don't know enough about this topic, but the from what I understand, the economic freedom in Chile has dramatically swayed the other direction. So... It's just a matter of choice so that, you know, if you want to go, you will, that kind of thing. This is what I'm Okay, so, so then the argument is that you have, you know, friends, loved ones, family in the United States, and you should leave them to go to Chile knowing what awaits them. You shouldn't stay and fight. You should abandon them and save yourself and leave everyone behind. Now, understand, you should, maybe you should go to Chile. I'm not arguing whether you should or shouldn't. I don't know, right? But what I'm saying is that from the status perspective, what they're saying is you should get out and you should leave everyone behind to a, a pretty grim fate. I mean, I've well, never seen any action movie where that is heroic. <laughs> yeah, well, except it might leave be, the women and children have... behind. I'm going to save myself. <laughs> Actually, if we could well, nail nail them down into the lower decks of the Titanic while we get to the lifeboats, yay! Steph, I thought you would have learned this. Please don't give examples that are counter to my point okay i thought you learned this in the <laughs> i'm judges. playing de- yeah i'm playing devil's advocate from a status <laughs> you know how, how I, I would argue the position look I, maybe you should go to chile right i mean I, I don't think that it's right that you should be driven out of where you were born leave friends family contacts connections language culture all of that behind i mean if people think that's some kind of solution then what they're doing is they're avoiding the argument Right, come on. You and I both know they, that people will do a hell of a lot 
of ridiculous jelly-based gymnastics in order to avoid some very simple and basic truths in their life, right? So the yes, idea that, well, I'll, you know, maybe I'll listen to your argument if you're not in the country. It's like, well, if I'm not in the country, why the hell would I be talking to you? That it, It's just a way of putting the onus on you to somehow prove your argument by doing something that is really tough. I mean, going to get to it, you can do it, right? I mean, you can go talk to, Do- to Bobby Casey or, or, or to, uh, to Doug Casey or to uh, the Dollar Vigilante, Jeff Berwick. You would talk to all of these people. They're all great to talk to if you're interested in that kind of stuff. And you can. You can uproot yourself. You can go buy property elsewhere. You can get used to a new culture, a new climate, a new language, whatever, right? Absolutely. And that has zero well, bearing think, on right. the argument as to whether statism is false or not. It definitely has zero bearing as far as whether the argument is is sound or not. But I think that I think that there's some validity to say that setting an example might be stronger than the argument itself. So I mean, I don't know what what percentage of the people would you say needed to accept the non-aggression principle in order for a stateless society to to be successful? Well, it's not the number of people; it's the it's the dedication of the people, right? There's that old quote, uh, never doubt that a small group of committed individuals can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. You know, the vast majority of people are empty-headed ballast floating on society like a cork on an ocean. You know, they've done studies where they, they ask people, they say, do you support the repeal of the 1975 Family Emergency Act? And almost half of the population will give big detailed reasons about why they support or don't support the repeal of the 1975 Family Emergency Act. The only problem, of course, is that there is no such thing as the 1975 Family Emergency Act. Uh, Most people will make up astounding amounts of bullshit with a completely straight face to prove or disprove things that they have absolutely no idea about whatsoever. You go to people who are Democrats and you say the Republicans support the repeal of the 1975 Family Emergency Act. And all of the Republicans say, well, it's, we, we should keep it. It's terrible. Just because they hear that the Republicans support its repeal. It's terrible what the Republicans want to do. They, they have no weight in the world. They have no existence in the future. They are l- literally like ghosts in the physics of the world. I mean, they'll pass through, they'll reproduce, they'll talk about the weather with some people and they'll mow their lawn and they'll consume resources. But in any foundational or cultural way, they simply do not exist. Now, that's about half the population as a whole based on a wide variety of studies. Now, other people have convictions but will bow to the slightest pressure. In other words, somebody who is direct, somebody who is confident, somebody who is assertive or forceful without being abusive will drag them along like a net after a fishing boat. They'll just, they'll just get caught up and they'll, they'll be dragged along. This is why it's really damn important because we never know when some completely evil demagogue is going to arise and drag both the completely ghost-like and the soap bubbles in the wind 
of of general opinion is just going to come along and with the force of his vitriolic or her vitriolic personality is just going to sweep everyone over the cliff of evil. I mean, we're not more than a Hitler and a half away from that kind of, right, which is why it's really important for good people to stand the hell up and say what is right as forcefully, as clearly, as engagingly as possible because you never know when that demon is going to arise. You know, he could be uh, in his diapers right now. He could be, uh, you know, he could be getting everyone's lunch money through verbal abuse in in, uh, middle school. He could be 18. He could be 22. He could be getting his first job in politics. You don't know where this satanic periscope is going to come up with this big-ass nuclear submarine coming in to to turn the future into ashes. We don't know where that person is or when he's coming or whether he's coming. He's coming for sure, sooner or later, because there's such a power vacuum. There's so much power at the top of society that it's going to draw someone like that in, like a vacuum draws in an asteroid or a gravity well. Sorry, gravity well draws in an asteroid. It's already a vacuum out there anyway. Don't want to get my space metaphors wrong. Anyway, but um, uh, so... Sorry, go ahead. That's this is kind of exactly my point, right? If if our goal is to teach that the non-aggression principle is correct, and you know, I don't know if you have to teach a majority of the people that's correct, a great a great amount of them. You know, we're surrounded by status that accept that violence is the correct no, way to solve. No, we're not surrounded by status. That's what I'm saying. We're surrounded by inertia. We're surrounded by anything, nothing. Okay, you know, well, the vast majority that, of people will simply do what a confident person tells them to. I'm not making this up. You've seen the Stanley Milgram experiments. You've probably read about those where people, the majority of people will kill someone because someone in a lab coat tells them to. This yes. has been reproduced all throughout the world. The majority my, of people will apply lethal electricity to a simulated victim because somebody in a lab coat tells them to. We are not surrounded by status. We're surrounded by people who find it more convenient to be status than to not be status. And reasoning isn't going to change their mind very much because there's no no capacity to reason. And so the way that you simply make it more uncomfortable to be a status than not be a status. Sorry, this is what the against me argument has always been about. You can say to your friends, yo, you think I should move? You think I should leave the country? Do you support me being thrown in jail for following my conscience if I stay within the country. It makes it uncomfortable for them to be a statist. And most people will have no adherence to reason and evidence whatsoever. They simply go off social convention. This is why I say to people, sorry, you got to make people uncomfortable if you want to change the world because most people will only change their minds and their ethics because it's uncomfortable for them to stay where they are. Do you think everyone just woke up one day after... 100,000 years of virulent racism and said, ah, I've listened to the arguments and uh, I guess I accept that racism is bad. No, not not at all. Why are most people not racist? Or at least don't pretend to be racist or aren't openly racist because it's uncomfortable for them to be racist because they're going to be criticized and put down and attacked. And I'm sorry, but this is the way that society has to change. In the future, people will listen to reason and evidence. But right now, push the fuck back and make them uncomfortable for being statists. You gotta well, leave the goddamn country. How about they stop wanting you thrown in jail for not wanting to be aggressed against? How about they want you not being thrown into the fucking rape rooms of government prisons because you want to be able to follow your conscience in a peaceful manner? You gotta leave the country, my ass. If you want to leave the country, fine. But don't leave it to prove a point. They're the ones who have to be made uncomfortable because the reality is they are supporting wars and aggression.
I think that them, they don't say, you know, you need to leave the country if you if you want to make this a compelling argument. I'm saying that there might be some validity to the fact, well, like if you look at slavery, for instance, okay, slavery was abolished globally in a time frame of about 100 years, and that happened in a time in which communication was extremely slow. I mean, 10, 20 times, I don't even know, slower than it is today. So, the, and the way it was one society abolished it, the other fell, and the other fell, and the other fell. To think that we have this idea, this mechanism, this stateless society that we, that we want, and that we don't create it and cripple the states globally in a short amount of time span because of the, how quickly communication exists today. I mean, to think that we couldn't create a stateless society and within 15 years, Every global, every global state would crumble because of how inefficient it was and how much better and how we would have all the biggest and brightest people on our side. No, you know, no, it's, no. it's similar to the zeitgeisters, right? They claim to have this, right? They claim to have this mechanism that they can have an algorithm that can distribute things and blah, 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 blah. We're claiming that we have something better. We should just do it. I feel like that is where our focus should be is no, no, listen, listen. I mean, I, I know I've used, I know I've used the slavery metaphor before. But as I've talked about a number of times, not that you would have heard it necessarily, but um, the, 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 the shift to a stateless society is infinitely different than a shift from s slaves to taxpayers, right? Why did slavery end so quickly? Because the advent of industrialization made it more profitable to have workers than slaves, right? It was an upgrade of the livestock to go from slavery to taxed employees, right? It wasn't because there was this wonderful sense of human equality and everyone's equal and, and by gosh, you know, we should respect the property rights and self-ownership of everyone. If that was the revolution, they would have gotten rid of slavery and the state, right? It was an upgrade to make the livestock more profitable for the farmer. It was not the end of being a farmer. It was an upgrade of the farmer's living conditions. Oh, look, if I set my slaves free, they'll invent cell phones and antibiotics for me. I'll take that. <laughs> but the shift to a stateless society is the elimination of human ownership. Slavery to employees was simply an upgrade and a huge upgrade. I mean, the, the tax farmers are way better off with self-directed livestock than with slave livestock. But And so the, the end of slavery was a massive improvement for their condition. The end of the state, though, well, that is a very, very different matter. Uh, I kind of understand your point. I guess my... Let me think. Um, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like like you said, the, the new Hitler may have been born already. And if we have to spend the next 300 years convincing and combating all the nuclear weapons, the ability to print money, the monopoly of force, all the biggest tax burdens in the world, if that is what we're up against, then perhaps there's some validity to just setting the example Funding, you know, one of these seastead programs or something. I don't know how realistic those are, but some something or you know, moving a big piece of the movement to a specific location and overwhelming them in some sort of economic fashion. It doesn't seem sure. far fetched to me. Okay. 
Yeah, look, I mean, you can do those things. I'm not saying, you know, do X or Y. I mean, look, uh, Doug Casey's got something going on in Argentina. We'll, Mike, just remember, we'll put the links to these below because they're well worth examining. Les Dette Cafiet, I think it's called, in Argentina. Um, uh, Jeff Berwick has got his gulch gulch going in Chile, uh, which is well worth uh, looking at. And well, again, we'll put all the links in. Uh, Mike, actually, if you can get the links, we'll speak them for those who are listening to the podcast. You can look into these. There is the, the Free State Project, as you mentioned, in New Hampshire. They're trying to get, and, and I think those things are great. You will be around like-minded people. You won't have to be, you know, the, uh, you know, the gay guy in the uh, small town in, in Tennessee in 1920, right? Uh, and uh, so you will be around like-minded people. You know, whether you end up achieving a free society there or not, you will live more free being surrounded by people who are reasonable, and reasonable, rational, and virtuous. So I think it's well worth looking into those things. If you want to leave the country, great, fantastic. But don't leave the country in order to gain credibility. Don't leave the country in order to reinforce your arguments. That is allowing other people's ignorance and resistance to dictate your movements. If you want to go to these places, go. But don't go to gain credibility. That's letting other people's idiotic, anti-rational, anti-empirical mindset drive you out of the country. I think that's something that, that is not the mark of, of the courage that we need. Yeah, I understand that. Good. <laughs> All right, do you mind if I move <laughs> to the next caller? No, that's fine. Steph, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Uh, great, great questions. I really appreciate that. Uh, thank you. All right. Oh, sorry. Yeah, com forward slash Berwick Chili. B-E-R-W-I-C-K-C-H-I-L-E. com forward slash Berwick Chili. That's for the Gulch Gulch in Chile, and they actually have a purchase program that is significantly reduced at the moment. So if you want to look into that, I think that's great. FDRURL.com forward slash Casey, C-A-S-E-Y, Casey Argentina. Uh, you can get to both of those from there. Of course, Free State Project, uh, you can just Google that. So uh, go to those uh, through those links and have a look at what they've got to offer. A uh, lot of interesting stuff. And you have a team there, of course, that will help you transition if you want to uh, move assets uh, all through legal means and all that. If you want to give up citizenship and so on, you've got lots of very uh, intelligent people. Uh, of course, Bobby Casey is someone I've uh, done a bit of work with, C-A-S-E-Y as well. And um, you can look into, he's very good at helping people to diversify assets outside of a single geographical area. Uh, I don't have any stake in these things, but these are all people I think are very uh, helpful in um, uh, helping people to to explore their options. So, All right, so let's move on to the next caller. All right, Phil, go ahead. You're up next. Oh, Stefan, you are a charitable and kind man with your time. I really appreciate this. Uh, just Thank you for your patience. I'm about... sorry it took so long. <laughs> no, no, it's not that. My uh, my computer crapped out for the three minutes right when I was about to be at uh, the next caller after waiting two hours on the phone. And I'm sorry like, about that. Yeah, well, my I'm not. I'm not proud show, of so my reaction. It was, it was arms up to the heavens, cursing the gods I no longer believe in. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I will... <laughs> Damn you, empty will, skies! Right. Uh, stupid. I, I can't even think of anything clever right now. I'm still shaking with a tiny bit of anger about that. I guess it reveals my true character. That's not good. Anyway, okay. So my initial quest, or idea was um, the, other, the other day, you showed up in one of my dreams... Um, you, your wife, daughter, and your mother and brother. So, um, I came to visit your house, uh, 
you were there and you were crying and you said, I finally wait, realized wait, 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 I had. You mean my current family and my family of origin, we were all living together? Um, no. Well, at the beginning of the dream, you were not yet living together. Somehow, it, I don't know what your actual house looks like. I don't know what any of it is. It was just at the end of this cul-de-sac, but you were in it. And uh, okay. so you have become one of my archetypes. So hooray. Um, my... Uh, so I show up at your house, you are crying, and you, you tell me that you have realized you need to forgive your mother and brother. And so right. the next thing in the dream is that they show up and you are all interacting. I have no idea what they look like. Um, my brain was just kind of adding that all together. And, uh, but your house was like a hoarder's paradise. You were incredibly messy and disorganized. Like there was piles of everything. I don't even think you had a front wall on your house. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> okay, right, right. But, so we were all really surprised um, that you were forgiving them after, you know, I've been listening to your show for several years. I've been wanting to call. I never knew what to call about. And this dream was kind of a kick in the butt because, uh, you know, one of my questions I've always wanted to ask is like, I, I'm 29 years old. I'm married. I have two children and one on the way. But I am very disorganized and cleanliness and organization has always been a struggle for me. So that is the situation in my real life that I feel this dream was kind of being the last boot in the groin to get me to, to actually call in. So, all right. Well, but, yeah, um, I, doubt I appreciate you would that. Of your mother and brother, but yeah. Sorry. No, I, I appreciate <laughs> that. That's, that's a fascinating dream. Now, of course, the reality is that obviously I may have had some influence over you, but, uh, you know, we don't know each other. And so the most likely thing is that people, that th this is about, about you. So I guess my first question, which is, you know, could be right, could be wrong. My first question is, what is the status in your life of people who may or may not involve your forgiveness? Ah, uh, okay. So, okay, as far as forgiveness... I have my my mother lives locally. I, I, I live um I live in Utah and my father lives all the way back in New Jersey. So my mother is like two blocks away and my father's back east. Um I think it oh gosh, it's just a cascade of um you know, their divorce and me living with my mom while she was married to other folks. And uh yeah, so sorry, now my brain is starting to uh, fudge up a little bit how old were you I, I don't if you want to take take a moment to gather that's fine or i can keep asking questions whatever yeah for you. Dude, yeah sorry when the call got dropped i was like it's three minutes out of two hours how is that timing working out okay yeah just let it second. go sorry let it go all right <laughs> we're, we're chatting right. now live in the moment man live in the moment um so I, just, how old were you yeah. when your um uh when your parents divorced well my parents kind of had a divorces interruptus when I was like uh, 12. Um, so they got separated. They were going to get divorced, but then they got back together. But then they finally got divorced when I was 16. And what was their relationship like when you were uh, younger than 12? Uh, it, mm, they weren't big fighters. Like I don't remember any knockdown drag out fights between them. I don't, they were never abusive to each other. Um, but it was kind of this dull thing because I, I think they had a shotgun wedding. They haven't, 
quite come out and said it, but I did the calculations on my brother's birthday and their wedding day. And basically, yeah, my, my brother wasn't a preemie. So, um, you know, they got married because <laughs> they, uh, my, my mom got pregnant, you know, and she was 20 when she got married my dad was 22. They were young, but they stayed together for 18 years. But, um, I think they just kind of got to a point where they realized they just didn't love each other and, uh, decided to move on. It really sucked. It was really shitty. Like, I don't, I don't, why didn't they love I, each other? Ah, uh, they had nothing in common. I was like common. simple questions. Yeah. They had nothing in common. They, you know, my mom comes from like an upper middle class family, you know, really like they don't match at all. Like my dad's from this, you know, kind of blue collar worker perspective, um, or family, you know, I'd go to my one, my dad's mom's house and it was a trailer and I'd go to my, uh, mom's mom's house and it was this, uh, you know, three story house with, uh, you know, an acre of land and all this beautiful development. So it's kind of the, <laughs> you know, it, they just never matched. They tried to make it work because of my brother, I guess. Um, but I'm not trying to make any defense for their actions. I'm kind of past the point of trying to justify the sins of my parents. So. Okay. Hmm. So you, you've talked about some kind of incompatibility, but, um, what, that doesn't explain why they didn't love each other. Oh, okay. All right. Something just popped into my head. My mother has a uh, mental illness. She has a, a bipolar. She's been diagnosed with epilepsy in the past, which I don't. Okay. You get medicated for that. Um, so bipolar epilepsy currently her, her doctor is telling her she has ADHD. Um, and because she had those symptoms, she actually kind of put me through the ringer throughout elementary school and middle and high school. Uh, taking me to various doctors, I, you know, diagnosed with a bunch of different things over the years. Sorry, so, what do you mean? Uh, she took you to like, are we talking a Munchausen by proxy? I mean, what, what are we talking oh, about? That's where, you know, women... yes, I, I, I called it a projectile hypochondriac, but then I found out like she wasn't. Yeah, so this is, uh, for those who don't know, me. this is a syndrome wherein women uh, seek attention and sympathy by manufacturing illness in their children and taking their doctor taking their children to doctors uh, i guess it was dramatized in a movie called the sixth sense uh, in, in a way that's i think a bit more extreme did she um uh, did she believe that you had mental health uh, issues and is that what she took you to doctors yeah. for it's uh, and did the yeah, doctor yeah. say well of course you've got some stress you grew up with a woman who's being diagnosed bipolar so yes that's obviously right <laughs> no that's the exact opposite of, uh, right. what they said, of it is. they just went right along. Um, you know, first it was hypoglycemia when I was in fourth through sixth grade. Then I got diagnosed with epilepsy somehow. Um, and I was medicated for that. And some of those medications are also used for bipolar. And so I started exhibiting symptoms of bipolar. And so they medicated me for that. And one of those medicines caused problems with my thyroid. So I got, Oh gosh. Oh, now you're making me talk about it, Steph. You're making me confront my stuff. I just wanted to talk about you know how that I'm messy. This is, <laughs> this is completely horrifying, right? You know that, right? I mean, you're taking kind of a light tone with it, which I understand. But oh, this is yeah, I think humor is my horrifying, coping mechanism. Right? Yes. Oh, Jesus Christ! Yeah, like I 
this is this is what's crazy. I was in, you know, it, it's such a piddly thing, and I find public schools abhorrent right now. But like, I was in gifted and talented programs. You know, I had a high IQ from which I derived a false sense of pride for most of my life. Um, but I ended up dropping out of high school because I like the all of these combinations, like the divorce, my grandfather's death. Um, my first girlfriend that broke up with me all happened within like nine months of each other combined with switching medications every couple of months. Ooh, maybe that's why I'm messy stuff. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't take a late tone. You're right. I can't. I mean, you, you experienced some significant physical risk and, and outright harm from illnesses that you don't believe were real, but that your mother dragged you to doctors. And this, of course, this is not just your mother's doing, but the doctor's doing as well, that they put you on drugs for an illness that you did not complain about, that your teachers did not complain about, and for which they had no medical evidence, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and this was in the, uh, you know, like 96 through 2002 when all of this was going on. So I don't know how much progress has been made in that industry, but it was really just kind of like, let's try this. Oh no, that didn't work. Let's try this. Oh no, no that it's didn't still work. the same. It's still because they're not treating yeah. anything that can be identified. Right. So they can just put whatever bullshit they want into people. Oh, oof. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I wanted, yeah, I had wanted the call to like, yeah. I, this is really what I wanted to talk about, but yes. I, I, you know, you had been so charitable with your time. I didn't want to go further with that. And I, I, and uh, talked to I don't give about, late callers short shrift, right? I mean, I don't give less time to late callers unless I, you know, my bladder is completely exploding, which is fine. So no, take, take your time. I got all night. Oh, so yeah. And you know, and I've gone through that whole timeline in my head since I was about 18 or 19 when I first uh, moved out of the house and went away to college. And um, I, uh, you know, and I've had conversations with my mother about it. And she has been good in her response. Like, I, I listened to, like, she, there was no denial. And she has sincerely apologized and... Um, she offers apologize for what? what is she not denying um she's not denying that she that her taking me to all those doctors was the wrong decision um and that was it immoral she, uh, and she also off offers wait sorry go ahead i'm sorry was it immoral wrong decision is you know i shouldn't have bought that camera that's a very yeah. innocuous way of putting it, right? Hmm. Yeah. I, does, does, she, does she I get that it was immoral? I don't remember words about it, what, what she has done. Um, I, I feel like her apology is more in her actions, that she realizes the challenge um, that that caused me. You know, the self-loathing and, you know, you go from defining yourself by being, you know, I get straight A's and I get all these good grades to now I'm a high school dropout. I hate myself. I really like, who am I? I'm sorry. So, uh, maybe I missed that part. So you ended up dropping out of high school. Yeah. So get on medication at 11 for, I, I I'm pretty sure it was 11 for, uh, epilepsy. 
And some of those, from what I was told by the doctor, some of those medicines also treat bipolar. So it's went through a series of, um, sorry, I'll make this quick. So first it was epilepsy from like 12, uh, 11 to 13. And then it went to bipolar. And I'm sorry, uh, my understanding that you didn't have any, any seizures or petty mouths or anything like that that might indicate that the closest thing to it. Um, I would go into my parents' bedroom when I was a kid and I'd kind of get these strange feelings. Like I don't feel like myself. That's how I would describe it as a child. It was kind of this detachment. Like sometimes it would happen in the mornings when I woke up. Sometimes it would happen in the middle of the night. So I look at that as kind of the thing that might have triggered it. I don't blame myself for it, but there was that that could have been. Um, Did your father know that your mother had mental health problems to put it as nicely as possible when all of this stuff was going on? Like when you were being diagnosed with potential epilepsy? Uh, yeah. Oh God. If, yeah, I just, I, for a long time, I didn't let myself be angry at my dad for his involvement in all of this. Like as I got older, he told me that he was completely opposed to all of this. Um, but (laughs) I've yet to front him and just be like, dad, why didn't you fucking, sorry, pardon. Why didn't you stand up? Like, why didn't you say, look, if, if, if you imagine for a moment that the only thing that would upset me about this story is your use of the word fucking, don't worry about that. That is the least Thanks. offensive part of what you're saying by far. I just want to be clear about that. So why didn't you fucking stand up for me, Dad? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and can I can I give you one more ingredient to this delightful slurry of uh, um, childhood trauma? <laughs> I, yeah, just don't call uh, it delightful 13, slurry as a joke. Yeah, I'm sorry. So after... Oh, thank you. After my parents had their first divorce, like almost divorce. And then they got back together. Um, within that year, my mom joined the Mormon church. Uh, she, she had like, my mom was in, Ooh, am I allowed to say this? She was in the program. She was in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and, uh, so she found Mormonism appealing because they didn't drink or smoke. So she started engaging in that. And then the missionaries started teaching me, and I didn't want to get baptized, didn't want to get join the church. But then And how old sorry, how old were you at this time? Thirteen. Thirteen. And I was into Marilyn Manson at the time. <laughs> of course you were. Oh, wow. And so is it my understanding <laughs> that your mother found it very important to free herself of mind altering substances? Yes, yes. When she yeah. When I was three years old. At the old, same she... time as she was dragging you around from doctor to doctor to get your brain screwed up on meds. Oh. Yeah. I always prided myself because I right. never drank and I never smoked straight edge. But dude, I, the variety of drugs that was given to me as a teenager. Holy shit. Oh, <laughs> wow. This is like whole new perspective. I so appreciate you. Have you. To, you have to, uh, you, you have to stop laughing at this. Oh, like you, I'm sorry. Like I, I hate to be blunt and I've let a whole bunch of them go. You have to stop laughing. It's very disturbing for others, right? Yeah. Oh, my you know, God. Huh, and then I was raped. Can you believe it? <laughs> you, you realize that's, that's not how and you want to present yourself. Because healthy people are going to be like, what? What? And I'll cry at diaper commercials. You know, a dad holding oh, yeah? a baby. And I'm, I understand, oh. right? Because that's what you needed. Yeah. Diaper commercials. I mean, those, those long-distance commercials, I don't think they probably have them anymore now we've got Skype, but... 
Yeah, I mean the sentimentality, but but you're talking about like extremely brutal child abuse. Mm. And there was never any spanking, but this is yeah. Would why didn't someone just talk to me? Why didn't someone just see what was going on in my, my head and ask me what I wanted? Well, for that it, to occur, society would have to respect that child children are people. And uh, we're a generation or two at least away from that. Mm. Oof. You telling me not to laugh at it? Yeah. That, that, is, that feels really important. Yeah, you, you, you've got like, to. You know, this is not like, uh, you know, and can you believe it? I lost my keys. This is like, and can you believe it? My childhood was stolen. Mm. Yeah, man. Oof. Sometimes, yeah, there are times when I sit, I really think about it, and I just, if I knew a kid going through that, I would be like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to a restaurant? Do you want to go do something fun? Do you, like, what do you need, buddy? What are you interested in? Please, let me help you. <laughs> let me help you get through this. Yeah, it sucks, but just know that someone's here for you. I actually worked at a youth crisis center with uh, kids who were going through a lot of the similar stuff that I went through, and um, I was actually able. And you to wouldn't help laugh some kids. at them, right? No. So don't oh, laugh no. at you. I'm not laughing right now, by the way. That's not. No, but what I mean is, you wouldn't laugh at somebody who told you this story. So I'm saying, give the same respect to yourself that you would for some stranger, right? And and don't laugh at your own history in the same way that you wouldn't laugh at somebody telling you this story, right? Because what you're, what you're, when you laugh like that, what you're inviting people to do is to view it as a joke. And yeah. that is abusive Old towards yourself. tragedy is comedy, you know. Yeah, oh, comedy can you believe disaster. my nutty mother, blah, 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 right? That is um, inviting people to come into your life in an abusive way. Because anybody who will find that, will, will go along with that amusing aspect that you're trying to present uh, is not healthy. And you know, people who care about you would, would push back, right? Obviously would say, no, 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 no. This is not, this is not comedy, right? Uh, and then you would have a chance to, to, to be more serious about it, right? Oh, because yeah. it's a serious subject. You know, oh. you, don't see, you don't see clowns giving tours at Auschwitz, right? That would be deeply no. offensive. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I wonder if that, Yes. And I find, and just a side note, I find myself drawn to the most, you know, abrasive, you know, comedy that is out there. You know, Doug Stanhope. That's because you, you, you embody that abrasive comedy. Yeah. Oh God. Okay. Uh, sorry. Not to laugh, but that's the laughter of acceptance. And no, okay. No more laughter. Dude. Wow. Oh, so, all right, where where do I go? Do you want to know what the dream is about? Yes. Oh, yeah. That. Yes, please. <laughs> I claim to have forgiven my family of origin, right, in the dream. Right, yes. And I'm crying in the dream. I'm a hoarder, 
and my house has no wall. Right? Yeah. It means I have no protection, no defense, no shield against the elements, right? Right, right. Um, and I'm crying, and I claim to have forgiven. And mm. you don't see my family of origin earning that forgiveness, right? No, not at all. It's, right. it's almost so like it just something in the dream. Here. It's saying, I am going to pretend to forgive them for their needs. Can't be for my needs because to forgive people who've not earned forgiveness is a denial of your true experience. It is a conformity to the selfish needs of abusers to forgive people who have not earned your forgiveness. It's what they need. They want you to forgive them and they don't want to lift a goddamn finger to earn it. They want the solve, the, the, the drug, the narcotic of your forgiveness without actually the work of earning that forgiveness. It's another conformity to the selfish needs of abusive, narcissistic, destroyed people. Oh. Forgiveness can be earned. But to grant forgiveness in the absence of people earning forgiveness is simply to comply once more with their selfish demands at your emotional expense. What is a hoarder? Wow. A hoarder is driven by two things, in my opinion. A hoarder is driven by a, an incredible fear of being criticized. Because a hoarder keeps everything. And what do they say why they keep things? They say, I might need it someday. Right? right? Right. We've all had these things, like we had some friends come over and they were kind enough to help us clean out our garage. And in that garage, it, I mean, my place is, is clean and tidy. I mean, you, you, my, you'd be shocked. My, my study is, is, you know, very clean and, and neat and I don't have papers out. I don't have stuff out. It's, you know, you can set, it's, it's very nice. And when I was in the garage, you know, literally for, a decade I've had a piece of plastic that is the cover or the the lid or something. I don't know what. <laughs> I've always kept it. Why have I always kept it? Because I'm like, I know I'm going to one day find whatever the hell this attaches to. And if I don't have it, I'll be like, oh, man, why did I throw that thing out? And you always have this fear like the next day you're going to find whatever that thing is attached to and you'll need it. And I just I tossed it. It's like, okay, well, if I need the lid, I'll find a way to get one or I'll live without it. Or if I live without it for 10 years, I can live without it for the rest of my life, right? People hoard partly because they're terrified of, of self-attacking for not having something that they need. That's one thing. And the second thing that's true about hoarders, in my opinion, is that they cannot differentiate between what is important and what is not important. Right? Have you ever had that book lying around or that magazine lying around? You're like, I'll get to that someday, right? And then at some point, you're like, you know what? Mm. I am never going to read this. I'm going to donate it. I'm going to do, I, I'm never going to read You have to accept it. I'm never going to read it. Oh, I'd like to read that book again. Nope. You know what? <laughs> I'm 47 years old. I'm, I'm never going to get to read that thing again. It's just an acceptance. It's learning how to prioritize. Hoarders keep everything because they can't prioritize. 
And hoarders keep things because they're terrified of the self-attack that will happen if they need something and they don't have it. Now, people who are unable to differentiate between the important and the unimportant and people who fear self-attack are people who are not attached. In my opinion, it's all my opinion, right? It's an amateur opinion too. But it's it, you know, what's called an attachment disorder. They did not bond with a caregiver as a child. And as a result, they're kind of spinning in space. Don't know what's important, don't know what's unimportant, have to hang on to everything, terrified of self-attack and all that kind of stuff because of the lack of bond. If you have a bond with someone who loves you, who is never going to attack you, how could you possibly end up self-attacking? It would be like my daughter speaking Mandarin, having never been exposed to Mandarin. It was impossible. Whereas if you have someone who's not attached to you, who's distant, who's manipulative, and who attacks you, then you're going to end up defensive. You're going to end up serving their needs rather than having needs of your own. I mean, it still amazes. It's what I want, but it still amazes with my daughter. She just expresses her needs. And she's interested in my needs, but she has zero desire to conform to my needs because they're my needs. I mean, that's what I want, but it still feels kind of weird, <laughs> you know? And so with, mm. with forgiveness, you have to be really careful when you have the urge or impulse to forgive people who've done you great harm that you are not continuing to serve their selfish needs at your own emotional expense. That it is something that has actually been earned by the other people. You know, people who are narcissistic really hate the idea that they have to earn things because they're entitled. They believe that everything should just be given to them. Why the hell should they have to work? Work is for others. Work is for idiots. I want things to be just given to me. I damn well resent the idea that I should ever have to earn them. And the same thing is true with forgiveness. The people who are entitled, people who are selfish, people who are narcissistic, loathe with the very bottom of the empty chasms they call a soul. They loathe the very idea that they would have to earn forgiveness from those that they've wronged. They just are damn well entitled to it. And if you don't pay it, they will just rage or neglect you until you give them what they damn well deserve. You know, collection companies have no problem sending repo men over to get your car if you haven't paid for it. Because if you haven't paid for it, the ownership reverts to them. And if you get in their way, well, sorry, they'll get a cop and they'll, you know, if you don't pay for your house, eventually they'll just kick you out of your house if they got to bring a cop with a gun. That's how entitled people feel about everything. Everything is owed to them. And if you don't damn well give them what is owed to them, which is whatever the fuck they want, you got to be punished because you're just not paying the legitimate debt of give everything to me when I want it, how I want it, and the way and tone and the way that I want it. And fuck you if you don't give me what I want. I will make you pay because you owe me because I am who I am and you are who you are. And that means it always rolls one way down the hill, all your resources to me when I want them, how I want them. And if you don't give me what I want in the way that I want it, when I want it, you must be punished until you provide it to me. You are like a television set, the old, old style television sets. You'd have to, you know, they'd get this flick, you'd bang them on the top or you would adjust the aerial. Well, you, you owe me a picture and I'd bang you on the top, right? And what was your experience when your computer didn't give you what you wanted earlier in the call? 
my friend. <laughs> Screaming. <laughs> oh. Rage. Okay, not laughing. Sorry. Screaming. You owe yes, me was... this conversation. You owe me working. I put in antivirus software and I defrag the hard drive. I've got all the latest updates. Work for me, damn it. Give me what I want. So I would imagine that's what the dream is about. I really hope this is all recorded because I really want to be able to listen to this and absorb it. Uh, you have no, um, you have no shield from the elements. My house, when I forgive without my parents mm. having earned my forgiveness, my house has no front, no wall, and it's full of. Is junk. that why I weep so easily at the slightest bit of sentimentality? Is it could could that be what it is? Why a baby commercial? Well, I'm suddenly. There's a, a an old quote by Young that says that um, sentimentality is the superstructure of brutality, mm. and. People who've experienced a lot of brutality are often quite sentimental. Uh, you know, Hitler loved his dogs, and uh, so it may be that aspect of it. Um, it may be a way of... You, you, when, whenever you talk about things being sentimental, it's not a particular person, right? It's, a, it's a more of a safe object, like a, a commercial or, or something like that. Uh, and so it may be a way of... of uh, allowing for those feelings to exist without the risk of attaching them to an actual person who can let you down, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when we're kids, well, our parents' moods, they're our weather when we're camping. You know, I mean, and so the idea that you have no protection against the weather if you forgive without them earned... Uh, you're open and you can't differentiate and you're afraid of self-attack and so on. We forgive. See, it's not a virtue to forgive someone because you're scared of them, to pretend to forgive. Because like if, if I don't forgive that person, what are they going to do? Or if they're going to rage at me, I say, well, I forgive and I'll call it a virtue. It's not a virtue to act out of fear. It's not a virtue to, to pretend to forgive someone because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't or if you, you ask them to earn your forgiveness. Okay, you've admitted you've done me this wrong. Now what? And people are like, well, I've, I've, I've said I'm sorry. Well, shouldn't that be enough? It's like, no. Not, not even remotely close. This is the beginning of a multi-year process where you attempt to make restitution. You know, I picked up a diet book. Why, why am I not 100 pounds lighter? No, no, you pick up the diet book. That's the very beginning of a multi-year process, of a lifelong process of changing your habits. You know, while well, I bought a pair of running shoes, I guess I can go win the Boston Marathon. no. You bought a pair of running shoes. In other words, you apologized. It's the beginning of a multi-year process of, change, of changing behavior, of, of a full-on, full-time commitment to doing things differently, to going out and training in the wet and in the rain and in the hail, and to putting down the cheesecake and not eating it day after day after day. So people think that the apology is the end. The apology is the potential beginning of a multi-year process, a multi-year process of somebody attempting to gain restitution and recover trust from someone that they've harmed, particularly when that person you've harmed has been a child. So when somebody says, well, my parent apologized or my spouse apologized or whoever wronged me apologized, I'm like, 
okay, so that is possibly the beginning of a multi-year process wherein that person attempts to earn back your forgiveness and, and your genuine trust and, and all of that. But then they it's always that's the beginning and the end. It's like, okay, well, so somebody threw a diet book at you, you left it behind, and now you're doing the same thing. And then you say, well, I guess I'm losing weight now. It's like, no, you're not. Because if somebody who apologizes to you without then embarking on a multi-year process of regaining your trust is just manipulating you. It's just manipulating you. What they're doing is they're setting this thing up where you can no longer fucking complain about how they treated you because, by God, they've apologized. I've already apologized. Why are you bringing this up again? How, how many times do I have to apologize for the same thing? Let it go. I apologize. You brought it up. We talked about it. I apologize. Let it go. Isn't that what people say? It's just a great way to tell you to shut the fuck up about things that went wrong. As I wrote many, many years ago, long before I started the show in a novel, a seeming apology can be a very elegant way of telling someone to shut the fuck up. Oh. This, well. Oh, well. Stefan, thank you so much. I'm sincerely, um, the fact that you've put other things aside to pursue all of this and the work you've put in to make sure that, you know, me here, that I can have this dramatic increase in self-knowledge just from a, a conversation with you. I, I, I can't thank you enough. It's why I donate and I'll donate more as I begin to earn more, but seriously, um, I know it wasn't easy for you. So thank you for what you've done to be able to give me this chance right now. This is, oh, this is exactly what I wanted to get out of the call is like fire and determination to, you know, Good. start moving in that direction. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. And I compliment you on the seriousness of your tone at the end versus the beginning and middle, which I, I'm not criticizing you for at all. I completely understand it. I, I get it. And you've had to tell this story to a world that wants you to laugh at it. And you're used to conforming to other people's needs. So I really get that. And I really compliment you on the great journey you've made, even in the space of this, this call, uh, in terms of the seriousness in which you've talked about this stuff at the end versus the beginning. And you'll notice that when you listen. But, uh, but thank you for that. I appreciate that. I appreciate that trust. Man. Oh, all right. Thank you a million times. So uh, you're yes, very welcome. And uh, congratulations on, uh, I'm sure, your great parenting. Uh, I, I, I love to hear listeners who are having children and lots of them. So breed, breed, my minions. So your message. Uh, so we can move on to the last order. Thanks them. again. <laughs> thank you. Bye. All right, Daniel, thank you for patiently waiting. You're up. Oh, wow. I didn't think I was going to get a chance. It is your chance. How are you doing, Steph? I'm well. How you doing? <laughs> I'm very good. I'm uh, honestly, I'm honored to speak with you. Um, I uh, stumbled upon your stuff uh, maybe six, eight months ago, and uh, went from a libertarian to an anarchist. I had I had uh, campaigned for Ron Paul and got disillusioned by that. And getting into some of the other stuff that you talk about is just is brilliant, you know. And uh, the fact that you can take the time like you are right now to talk with me and and other people and and share that completely openly 
uh, really appreciate. And uh, right before we, I got on this call, I made sure to donate to you for all the time that I've spent uh, listening and learning <laughs> well, from you. Here's, I appreciate that, and, and here's hoping I don't suck. No, and, and look, I mean, I, I appreciate that people call and say it's great, great to chat with you. You know, Daniel, it is great to chat with you. Like, really, I, I feel this about every caller, um, almost without exception. It, it, it is great. Uh, it, is, it is my privilege uh, to, to be able to talk with you, uh, to, to be a, a part of a venue where you can bring up stuff that's important to you, whatever it is. So I hugely appreciate that, that you're calling in. And it is, it is literally my, my, my privilege and pleasure and honor to, to chat with you. Well, thank you. And that's, uh, that's why you succeed, because you, you are so earnest in it all. So I guess uh, we'll get right into it, although I have, I have a lot of topics that I would love to talk to you about. Um, I guess I'll talk to you about the topic that I have prepared for, um, at least prepared to, to talk about somewhat intelligently. So uh, have you ever heard of the Indian, Indian philosopher Osho? No. Okay, well, he's a, he's a big guy in meditation. That was a question I wanted to ask you uh, on a different topic, is if you ever meditate but um he he has a lot of books and he i wouldn't say he's like a rigorous uh like rational person but he has a lot of good thoughts that come together and you read them and you're like yeah that makes a lot of sense do you know what i mean like i wouldn't say that if you read a whole book of his you would agree with everything although that's probably true no he's um if i can understand he's sort of like an aphorist uh in other words there are things I don't want to say they're like fortune cookie things because that's sort of to denigrate them, but there are things that are very thought-provoking that enrich your way of looking at the world. They're not necessarily syllogistical arguments with mountains of data, but like like Nietzsche is a great, one of the great aphorists where you can just pick up just about any book of Nietzsche's aphorisms, read through them, and just like spend half the day forgetting that you already finished your dump <laughs> on the toilet because they're just so <laughs> so thought-provoking. Yeah, I actually have never picked up Nietzsche, but I, I hear him mentioned all the time, so I'd better go out and get some. So I was going to read you this quote from Osho about marriage, and I wanted to ask you a question about marriage as an institution and its place in, uh, I guess, an ideal society, because that's often what um, we're talking about, at least a society built on principles. Um, so here, he talks about the origins of marriage. Do you mind if I read half a page here? No, please do. Man lived for thousands of years without marriage, but those were the days when there was no private property. Those were the days of hunting. Those people had no cold storage system, no technology. Whatever food they got, they had to finish as quickly as possible. They could only hope that tomorrow they would get some food again. Because there was nothing to accumulate, there was no question of marriage. People lived in communities and tribes. People loved, people reproduced. But in the beginning, there was no word for father. The word mother is far more ancient and far more natural. So uh, here's the key part, and I didn't get to look this up, so I'm just going to say this is conjecture or a theory. You will be surprised to know that the word uncle is older than the word father, because there were many men who were the age of your father, you didn't know who your father was. Men and women were mixing joyously, without any compulsion, without any legal bondage, out of their free will. If they wanted to meet and be together, there was no question of domination. The children never knew who their father was. They only knew their mother. And they knew the many men in the tribe. Someone amongst these men must have been their father. Hence, they were all uncles. Then the woman started experimenting to find what was edible and what was not edible. 
Soon, as hunting was becoming more and more difficult, men had to agree with women. We have to ship, shift our whole economic focus. We have to go for cultivation, for fruits, for vegetables. And these are in our hands. We can produce as much as we want, as we need it, and there is tremendous variety. But a problem was felt. After a person dies, who is going to inherit his property? Nobody wanted their property to be inherited by any XYZ. They wanted their property to belong to their own blood. Thus, it is out of economics, not out of the understanding of love, that marriage came into existence. Sacrificing human happiness for maintaining order in society. That's the end of his quote. Okay. So I and guess you have a question my about question. That? Yeah. So here's my question that I wanted to pose: Is it possible that marriage, while currently pragmatic, is ultimately an unrealistic, restraining, and even coercive institution that reduces human potential for and happiness in the long run? Well, I mean, marriage, in terms of its social and biological function, is relatively clear, I think. And you can go to Girl Rights Watch for more on this. But um, a man has, like, for, for a man who doesn't have a family, the amount that he has to work is very little. If he, if he just wants to eat for himself, he could just go and get his food. Uh, and And he really doesn't have to provide much nutrition he can get his food in an hour or two a day and the rest of the time he can you know sit around and you know masturbate and tell stories and whatever right and so a man has much more capacity for labor than he needs now a woman but but the man can't have children he can't pass on his genes you know which we all have the desire to do and biologically at least in terms of the sex drive and a bonding with infants and so on now, a woman has an excess of fertility, right? Because she can have children and the man can't. And so the man has an excess of labor and the woman has an excess of fertility. And so what happens is the man trades his excess of labor for the woman's excess of fertility. In other words, the man takes on the very onerous task of getting uh, food and water and shelter for a family which is far more than he needs to survive himself. And so he takes on that massive burden. And that's one of the reasons why men have significantly stronger bodies than women do. It's because men have to work a huge amount harder than women do to, to get food and shelter and, and water and, and all that kind of heat and all that kind of stuff. And because the woman is largely disabled for most of her adult life, you know, between the ages of sort of historically, you know, 18 and, and, and 40 or, you know, 16 and 20, uh, and 35 or whatever it's going to be for whatever local sort of situation there is, and sometimes much earlier than that. But the woman is disabled through pregnancy and breastfeeding. Uh, there is, of course, some, uh, some food production that women can do in ancient societies, but um, at least in an agricultural sense, there's a lot of babies hanging on and there's a lot of taking care of babies and protecting babies from animals and so on, right? I mean, they're so ridiculously helpless there. What does Glenn Beckham call them? Like death magnets or something like injury magnets. Um, so, and th this is why the, the woman claims ownership of the man's resources and the man claims ownership of the woman's reproductive system because that's the trade that, that is occurring. The, the woman says, okay, I am going to, to just stay with you and, and these children are going to be your children. Now, if these children are your children, then I demand 
all of the excess work and ownership and, and, and uh, pr provisions, the providing of all the goods that I want. And you owe me that because they're your children. And in return, the man says, well, I will give you all this stuff, but they better damn well be my children, <laughs> right? Because nobody wants to do that cuckoo's nest thing, not the Jack Nicholson, but the biological one, where he ends up taking care of someone else's children because then he's expending all of his labor, not for his own genes, which is not what nature kind of wants us to do, right? Or any, <clears throat> any animal or any species to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I don't know about... You know, this idea that there was this wonderful paradise in the past uh, where, you know, the Garden of Eden, the fruit fell from the trees and the rivers ran with milk and honey and so on is all I think it's all nonsense. I mean, the 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 bones that they find of ancient people are riddled with disease and and skulls are broken from blows. And and I mean, it's just uh, they're stunted from malnutrition. I mean, it was a. I mean, it was a complete shit pile to live a long time ago. Uh, there is, of course, this fantasy, this Garden of Eden and so on, which, again, I think is unresolved needs from early childhood, right? If you didn't get what you needed as a child, that fantasy uh, that it was some somewhere or somehow it was or will be provided is a way that you avoid dealing with the pain. So I think the people who have this uh, noble savage idea or this idea that that things were really great and then we got property and we got marriage and we got, you know, agriculture and then things were terrible i mean primitive tribes are uh, indescribably brutal towards their own children they're incredibly superstitious they live in terror of the elements they <clears throat> you know they have continual war half starvation so dependent upon things uh, other than you know in certain areas this is some degree why some people explain the apparent though i don't know if entirely proven disparity of iq between the races they say well you know in the harsher environments you got to postpone your gratification if you're a farmer in uh, france uh, where there's a long cold winter rather than you know a hunter gatherer in africa or something like that so but there is no garden of eden that i know of there's no you know just look at how chimpanzees live i mean it's pretty wretched and uh so i don't know that there was this happy time when everything was great and then this property thing came along the idea that um uh it was much more efficient uh, for women to to become monogamous with a man it's more guaranteed resources from the man and um it was but but in return for that the man is going to claim ownership over the woman's uterus in the same way that she can control she claimed ownership over all of his productive his arms his chest his legs his productive capacities uh, there may not be much of love involved in that but i mean if love was the primary motivator for reproduction no animals would have sex drives and of course sex drives are really the foundation of of this so i think that um uh you needed because because human infants are so ridiculously helpless for so long you know horses can be born walking it takes children about 10 to 12 months to learn how to walk it's crazy just how long our development takes and because of that long development and because of the perpetual disabling of women because of these ridiculously uh, underdeveloped babies that are born, um, you just needed to find a long-term commitment to to have the species, you know. The longer-term commitment uh, for the species means that children can be born smarter, right? One of the reasons, as far as I understand it, uh, that babies are born so prematurely is that if their heads were any bigger, they'd, like, split the woman open, like, a, you know, a Thanksgiving turkey uh, wishbone. And so, uh, so hang on, let me, let me just finish the thought and then I'll, I'll let you finish, uh, finish the show. But, uh, so, so the more commitment the woman can get from the man, the more helpless her children can, can be, which means the more development of the brain can be postponed 
till after the woman gives birth, right? So, so the men who, the, 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 the tribes which get more commitment from the man can have children that develop more outside the womb because they're protected. And so more commitment from the man means smarter children. So if we like this big neofrontal cortex, which allows us to have this conversation, monogamy is kind of what brought it about. Because if there's not as much commitment towards children, children simply can't be born as undeveloped, which means that they have to do more development inside the womb, which means that they're not going to be as smart, right? So monogamy drives the development of the neofrontal cortex and all of the stuff that makes our brains so wonderful because the, the babies can be more, more, more helpless because the woman has a real commitment from a man. In return, the man demands monogamy from the woman. Right. And so that's why in the marital institution, the man is supposed to provide and the woman is supposed to be faithful. And that's why for a man to not provide is as bad as a woman not being faithful. Right. So you hear all about deadbeat dads. You don't hear a lot about the, by some estimates, one in 10 fathers who are raising a child not his own. Right. But that's just because we've got a kind of gynocentric media and so on. Right. I mean, if, if you can imagine if one in 10 moms went home with a baby who wasn't her own because there was some callous mix up at the hospital, everyone would go insane. Right. But the idea that uh, a dad, one in 10 dads would be raising a child, not his own. Uh, well, that's just, you know, something we don't we don't really talk about. And so this idea that that, that patriarchy and, you know, that, that you got to be my woman and you got to only have my children, that this was somehow control over or or a, a degradation of women, uh, it's just nonsense. I mean, it's just, it was part of the development of the species, that, that monogamy uh, allowed us to, to produce these great brains. These great brains made us win in war and trade, which means that the great brains get to dominate more and more and more. And now we're trying to outgrow the, the war, that, the, the violence, that uh, it was part of our success as a species. It's not all just philosophy and child abuse. I mean, there is that you know, domination part of our, our environment, which we're trying to overcome, which is entirely right. I mean, you know, we have rapey impulses, I guess, sometimes too, but we're supposed to overcome those as sort of thinking and moral human beings. And so um, we're just trying to overcome that kind of stuff as well. But it was not oppressive towards women at all. It was just part of the development of the species. I mean, uh, as, as uh, Girl Rights Watt uh, points out, it's you know, when the woman is sitting at home with the igloo breastfeeding her baby and the guy is out there trying to spear a fucking narwhal with uh, a stick uh, to get food, uh, you know, it's hard really to think of the woman being overtly oppressed uh, and so on. So I think it's an interesting take on it, but I don't think it's particularly supported by a lot of uh, anthropology or biology. Anyway, that's my thoughts on it, but this is certainly by no means the end of, of what's true about that. What, what speaks to you in that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've listened to your stuff about it. I've heard you say a lot of those things about the roles of men and women. And, you know, I've studied this stuff for a long time. Personally, I uh, studied evolutionary biology and um, something that I wanted to speak on, because I know you, you briefly mentioned in one of your shows uh, the idea of, like, the pickup artist or the, uh, the single guy um, who sleeps with a lot of different women. Um, I remember you said it's like throwing your dick at a something just a, oh, a bowl of dumb or something just so like basically implying that those women uh who are involved are it's like uh, sorry what i said was it's like throwing your dick into a deep chasm of dumb <laughs> there you go <laughs> so uh, anyways to get back to what we're talking about um i'm not rejecting men and women working together obviously and i believe that people who want to get married should absolutely be allowed to get married i just feel that 
um, the institution of marriage is almost, um, I don't want to say obsolete, but it's, it's inflexible regarding... What, um, what do you mean inflexible? Do you well, mean because of the monogamy saying, requirement? Well, I mean, okay, so monogamy is one thing, but monogamy for the rest of your life, and then, you know, all these things in sickness and health and, uh, you know, all the, uh, the stipulations until death to us part, right? So, I mean, that's about as powerful a contract as anything could ever be. Sure, but, I mean, the, certainly the longevity of marriage is, is to, to the benefit of women. I have, I'm not arguing. Actually, I would say I'm coming from the position that marriage at this day and age doesn't take into account men's needs or, you know, I mean, half of the species um, development um, mentally and physically. Like, you know, talking about when you when you said, you know, it's like throwing at a chasm of dumb, you know, I think there's a, a large population of men who would like to live that lifestyle, but they don't do it because they believe that it's wrong. Um and because they would be ostracized uh, for a lot of reasons, um, and there's ostracized. You know, you Are you kidding me? I mean, how how is George Clooney ostracized? Isn't that kind of the life he's living? <laughs> well, I mean, look at Tiger Woods, right? So ultimately, there's he's this, he's uh, back on top, right? Yeah, but do you, do you know what I mean? Like people get um, smeared for these things. People get smeared. Now he. Now he. Uh, I mean, he good lord, married, Bill, so Bill Clinton, he, for Christ's sake, is is a hero uh, at the Democratic National Conventions. How is he being smeared? <laughs> I mean, t tell me somebody who uh, who who has been professionally destroyed through sexual indiscretion. Well, professionally is one thing. You know, personally is is the other side of it, right? So if someone, if their personal life. So if all the women in our society, especially the intelligent ones, expect you to marry them, it's it's really hard to have a long-term relationship with a girl unless you marry her, right? Right. So What's I guess wrong with that? What I mean, an intelligent woman should want to get married, and I don't mean the state institution, I mean sort of the personal commitment from the man. Because it's the best environment to raise children in, statistically and psychologically and physical, mental health, you name it. It is by far the best environment to raise a child in. And so that's the first reason. And the second reason is that even if you don't want to have children, it is by far the safest environment for women. Like a stable, committed marriage uh, it has the least amount of abuse and violence and, and dysfunctional behavior towards the wife. Uh, it is by far the safest environment for, uh, for a woman to be in. So I think these, a, a these smart woman, all... that's what you'd, you'd want what's best for your kids and you'd want what's healthiest for you. Right, but these reasons are, you know, they, they somewhat come from a place of fear. Now, I'm not saying that I have a better solution, but, you know... Well, no, but the man's, that... sorry, the man's comes from a place of fear as well which is that the man does not want to invest resources raising a child who's not his own. And, and, and it doesn't work very well. I mean, abuse, child abuse from a non-biological parent is literally 10 to 20 to 30 times more prevalent. Right? You, you have to bond with your child from birth in order to not abuse your child. I mean, the, the, the massive rise in, in, in child abuse in certain areas is because of the, the decline of marriage. Uh, if, if you go and try and parent someone else's kids, after, particularly after the age of four or five, 
they're not going to respect you, then you're not my dad, you're going to end up with lots of fights, and you get the most inexperienced parents going into the greatest possible parenting challenge, which is, I've never been a parent, I'm not growing into being a parent, I'm just suddenly a step-parent to some resentful kid who thinks I'm replacing daddy, who's destroyed the chance of their parents getting back together, and who doesn't want to listen to anything I say. And so this is one of the reasons why non-biological caregivers or just boyfriends drifting through some single mom's house abuse children vastly. It's not two or three hundred percent. It's 10, 20, 30 times the amount of abuse. So by far the safest place for children is within a stable, committed marriage with their biological parents. I mean, so I maybe we we'll change that, that if we end up with different this. kinds of people, but, but those are the facts as it stands, that uh, right, right, right. You know, people worry about BPA and, and stuff like that and, and you know, ALAR and apples and, and razor blades and candy and Halloween, which has never happened to my knowledge. But they don't point out the fact that, that, that when the parents break up, the risk of child abuse just skyrockets. That is, the divorce is by far the biggest risk factor. For children, it's not it's not priests, uh, it's not asteroid strikes, uh, it's not uh, whatever nonsense they're coming up with. Uh, it, it is divorce that is the biggest risk factor for for children. So, well, yeah, a woman divorce. who's intelligent yes. and a man who's intelligent will want a long term commitment at least for the length of the child raising. And of course, the woman whose value goes down considerably after she's fertile, because the man remains fertile, can trade her in for a younger woman. Uh, the woman is going to. Um, uh, who value, whose value goes down over time is going to want that long-term commitment uh, for for that. So the man's not going to trade her in for uh, a younger uh, woman. Uh, and so there's a number of different ways you can do that, which we don't really have to get into. But uh, yeah, I mean, a sensible woman who looks at the statistics and a sensible man who looks at the statistics and who cares for the well-being of their children will want to be in a long-term stable married relationship. Well, I guess, um, you know, you were talking about, uh, you know, single women, you know, boyfriends drifting in and out. I'm talking about more of a reasoned approach of, uh, you know, people who have their food, shelter, you know, a lot of these things that modern technology and uh, abundance takes care of for someone who's in the upper middle class, middle class uh, would, um, those people benefit from being more of a community of people who help each other uh, deal with problems and, and we're more familial. Now, I know that... Um, well, but sorry, but, but you're, yeah. you're skirting the issue, right? The issue is not a community of people who help each other. I mean, I have a community of people who help me and who I help. I just, right. I don't bang them. <laughs> no, we're talking about, you know, cocks and vaginas, right? I mean, you can don't talk to me about a community of people helping. That 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 doesn't require that you lube each other up and go for a ride on the sex trapeze, right? Well, um, I think this is the other side of the coin, right? So a lot of these things that we're discussing come from, you know, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. So I'm going to make this agreement so that we avoid these things instead of, you know, what kind of uh, life could we lead if we didn't have these fears. Do you, do you understand where I'm coming from? Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, I don't sit there and say, well, I, I really want to have sex with this woman I just met, but damn those vows. Oh, man, I can't believe I'm hemmed in. That's not the way it works for me. 
<laughs> right? The vows were not something that I made to my wife. Well, I don't want to like, criticize your marriage. No, right? no, no, no. But let me let me explain. It's not like you know. It's like it's like this idea that we all just go kill each other if it wasn't for the government, right? Like it's the only thing that prevents some guy from raping a woman. The law. Well, then, geez, right. he's pretty much a psycho, right? I don't sort of say, well, I just wish I could go and have all this great sex with all these other women, but I've got this horrible vow that's entrapping me. No, the vow was an expression of what I wanted anyway. So there was like, no I don't want to go life? have sex with Stop, other women. No... I love my wife. Uh, she's all I want, all I need. Uh, couldn't get better. Uh, so yeah, I don't feel trapped by any of this stuff at all. I mean, th th my desire for that is why I made those vows. It wasn't made grudgingly, and I don't regret making them. I, I, f I believe them more strongly now, 11 years later, than I did uh, when I made them. So, Steph, you're saying that at no point in your life you had that thought of, oh, I could go out and meet a lot of women and have a lot of amazing sex. I've never had that desire since I got married. Absolutely not. Do right, I ever well, find other women married. attractive? No, of course, fine. I'm married. Oh. I'm not dead. You but made, you no, made I have never, ever thought, that, boy, right? my life would be better if I could go out and have a lot more sex with, with women I had didn't know, I don't know. Okay, well, I'm not saying that, like, in your particular case, it would have been better to not get married. That's not what I'm trying to argue. What I am arguing is the, I guess, the rational basis for marriage, right? So is marriage rationally a good thing for men? And in a lot of ways, it's not when you think about some of these other desires. And then, but, the, you know, I'm very ambivalent about this. It's something I deal with in my personal life. Um, you know, I do want to have all the good things that come from marriage and having a family. But, you know, I think there is this other part of my persona that rejects the, uh, the loss of freedom, right? And I wonder if... You know, like, let's no, say but come on. I mean, look. I mean, if if you want to stay healthy, you need to eat right and exercise, and that means you're not as free to eat cheesecake and sit on the couch, right? But you're more free to do other things like live, right? <laughs> and so the idea that, of course, there's 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 things that you limit yourself with when you get married. Of course, absolutely, no question, no question at all. And there's things that you limit yourself with when you decide to lose weight if you're overweight. And there's things that you limit yourself with if you decide to exercise. But you gain more freedom through those things than through the rejection of them. I gain more freedom through marriage than I lose. Much more. I don't even want the freedom that I would have if I were not married. It doesn't appeal to me. Well, I understand no, that. I just I'm don't know that, that that's true that's for everyone. It's not a philosophical you know? argument. I'm just telling you sort of what right, I right. what I experience. And I would say don't get married to someone unless that's how you feel. But if you do feel that way, then it won't be a sacrifice. You know, there's always that old cliche, like the man wakes up in the morning if he's going to get married and he freaks out because he's like, oh, my God, I'm only going to sleep with one person for the rest of my life. Yay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I don't wake up every morning with this show and say, my God, I'm going to do one Am I going to have one occupation for the rest of my life? No, because this, this is the best occupation a human being could imagine. This is, I have right, the best job signed, in the whole world. You haven't signed an agreement that you will do this for the rest of your life. You, would, you wouldn't want to do No, that, but if right? somebody said uh, sign the agreement, I would sign it. 
because there's nothing better that I could do with my time. There's no more privileged position that I could be in than having these kinds of conversations. So I, I mean, I would sign that. But if and and I don't think that in a free society you necessarily would need to sign documents. So I don't know how it would work because you know it's hard to it's hard to know how things are going to shape out in the absence of a state. In a generally healthy society, I don't know that you'd need really much contracts or legalities at all. I mean, I I only do business on a handshake. Uh, I don't make people sign contracts with me and stuff like that. So I don't know. I don't know how it would work at all. And certainly, if somebody's miserable in a marriage and they can't fix it, then yeah, obviously look at your options. But I wouldn't view it as a, a limitation on your freedom. If you do view it as a limitation on your freedom, then you're thinking about getting married to the wrong person. Well, but I feel like you know I've uh, I've dated a few girls and I've dated a few awesome, amazing girls. Um, but I still always have this ambivalence, you know, and I think that it comes from well, then you uh, need more awesome and amazing. Until you can't picture a better person to be with, don't get married. You know, like right. uh, I, I, like when I it, first, my, my, my wife and I, you know, marriage, we, we right? first started talking about That's getting married. I mean, it felt so completely right. Uh, I had no doubt, no hesitation. I never have looked back. I never, I mean, she is like uh, the most amazing, best, fantastic person I could imagine being married to. And if you're, you know, but as if I was like, well, yeah, but, you know, what if she were taller or, or what if she was, you know, I don't know what, right? I mean, so right. well, if, you, problem, if you, you know, if they're it, not amazing right? enough for you to want to stay with, then just keep looking for more amazing until you get someone that you can't imagine improving upon. But I don't think that that's ever going to happen, you know, unless I found like the best woman on the earth. And then even then it would be like, well, maybe there's some way to improve on it or... And there's also something about it's not like the well, best. Well, no, no, it's look, not look. Perspective. If right? you if you have to have some modesty as well, right? Which is, are there things that I wish were different about my wife? Well, yeah, maybe sometimes, but for the most part, she's fantastic. And how am how am I supposed to know that what I would like changed would actually be an improvement? Right? Maybe some of the things are absolutely great the way they are. And am I going to stand in front of her and say, you have to be perfect to meet meet and match my standard? Dear God, I am not a perfect person at all. Absolutely. And so to demand perfection, you know, uh, is is like the 300 pound guy saying, I won't date a woman who's who's not physically perfect. It's like, uh, dude, there's a thing called the mirror. So to to demand absolute perfection is to live in a state of narcissistic self-idealization that is unsustainable. I'm not saying that's you. I'm just saying that logically you can't demand perfection unless you're perfect. And if you think you're perfect, you have the imperfection called vanity. Uh, so uh, I just point that out. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I definitely am not perfect. That's There's no doubt about that. I guess what I'm saying is... It seems like in a rational discussion, you know, I mean, I really respect you, Steph, and I know that you put marriage at the end of the dating road. And I just wonder if, you know, we aren't setting some people up for disappointment when we say that, you know, marriage is what you should end up. It's like, you know, maybe your person's, the person you're with isn't good enough, and that's why you don't feel that way. That's like the common answer. I feel like maybe we should also be able to say, you know, it's okay to do X, Y, Z and, and experiment um, about how we might uh, raise a family or, you know, have relationships. 
you know, I think that a lot of marriages end in, in divorce and a lot of marriages are painful and, and they stay together. And uh, that creates a lot of problems as well where, you know, and then, you know, a lot of your calling people or talk, talk about their traumatic childhood that comes from um, probably two people who shouldn't have gotten or maybe shouldn't have stayed married. Um, and maybe those children or those listeners wouldn't have been so scarred if they didn't have these expectations that their parents would stay together for all of eternity. I mean, I don't know how to argue any of that. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree that if people are in abusive, horrible marriages that they can't fix. Yeah, you certainly look at your options for sure. But um, I, I think, unfortunately, I mean, I have personal experience on my side. I have a huge amount of facts and data and empirical evidence on my side. Uh, I have biological evolutionary arguments on my side. I have the weight of evolved and we assume somewhat productive human uh, development uh, and evolution on my side. That doesn't mean that marriage is for everyone. Of course not. And it doesn't mean that everybody should get married or ought to get married or must get married or anything like that. And it doesn't mean that what I call marriage is a government document. It can be just a commitment, right? But what is important is honesty, right? Now, when I said to my wife, I will stay with you forever, I'm, I'm on, I was honest and I remain honest. And uh, if you are going to say to someone, well, I'm going to give it a shot, you know, but I'm, you know, I reserve the right to leave at any time. Well, that person should not have children with you until you've got that kind of commitment because otherwise they're just taking a, a, a very silly risk with, with other people's lives, their children's lives. And that's not, not even remotely responsible. In order to have children, you need to be there for the long haul. You need to be committed to the relationship for at least the next 18 years in order to, to be a good parent. And if you are not in a relationship where you are going to be committed to the other person for the next 18 years, then you shouldn't be having children, in my opinion. And it's not just an opinion. There's a lot of facts behind it. So whether you call that marriage or not, but to raise children productively together, you need that commitment. Uh, that is what is best for the children. And if you don't want that, that's do, fine. Do you but not then think it's possible you're going to be knowingly going into something that is not best for the children. So if two parents are best for a child, what if there was some uh, love hexagon out there where, you know, these people are, as uh, Osho said, men and women were mixing joyously and they're all raising the result. Well, I mean, I would really children? like to see, you know, the fact that he uses the word joyous doesn't prove to me anything. Um, you know, what he would need to do to make that right. case is to find, you know, very successful, uh, happy, peaceful, productive societies which were not stagnant, right? Because a stagnant society is always a sign of child abuse, right? The, the more children are abused, the, the more stagnant the society remains. Uh, and I don't know of any examples whatsoever of societies that advance uh, morally, technologically, economically through polygamy. So, you know, if he can make the case, he can make the case. Uh, you know, I'd be fascinated to read or something like that. But otherwise, it's just an argument by adjective and doesn't have any, any weight at all in, in any discussion about reality. Well, um, you know, I guess that's besides the point. If, like I said, if two people are best for a child, would it be theoretically possible that having more heads in the family household, especially adult heads, would be even better for the children. 
Well, sure, absolutely. I mean, if, if you know, extended families live together and so on, but that doesn't mean cock and vagina time, right? I mean, having more pe- people around to care for children is, is fantastic, but that doesn't mean they have to be having sex with each other. Anyway, I think we've reached the end of this, and literally I don't even remember the last time where I sat down for like three and a half hours straight, so i got to get up and, and move around. But uh, I really do appreciate your call. Uh, I'm sorry that we went long. Thank you for everyone's patience for uh, continuing uh, to to listen to the show, uh, to donate. Remember, youtube.com forward slash Freedom Main Radio. If you could subscribe, that would be fantastic. Uh, Twitter us on iTunes. Uh, share the if you don't have any money to donate or don't feel like donating, you know, share some videos. That would be great. Just post them Google Plus, Facebook, you know, Vimeo, whatever you you've got it would really help. Uh, FDRURL.com forward slash to uh, donate. Uh, thanks again to Mike for for staying up late. Thanks again to all the callers, and I guess I will talk to you Sunday morning. All right, thanks, Steph. Hey, before you go, can I uh, mention you should talk about the government shutdown being an opportunity to show that anarchy works. We don't need the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been quite revealing for people to see how much can function with the non-essential workers gone. Uh, that's a bit of a clue there, ladies and gentlemen. So have a great week, everyone. Talk to you soon.